Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to pass it over first to Spartan Grown. Thanks, Jack. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. Um, the best place to contact me is spartangrown at gmail.com through email. And uh, I can try to help you with all of your actually, organic or synthetic cannabis growing questions. Happy to have you back. Next up, we've got Dr. MJ. Hey, guys. Sorry about that. I was a little bit. And now I'm getting feedback. Um, maybe I was not ready for prime time there. I think I'm a little bit ready now. Sorry about that. I was getting my, my YouTube going and like you caught me in the middle of the act. Everybody saw it behind the curtain. No, anyways, guys, I'm, I'm Dr. MJ Coco, um, from CocoForCannabis.com. I also just started a, a Patreon and I wanted you guys to know about my show. It's going to be tomorrow night. I do ask Dr. Coco show, um, through zoom on Patreon um, I got a cool guest tomorrow, uh, Glenn from Premium Agriculture, who follows me and, and subscribes there. He runs a 10,000 square foot facility in Oklahoma. So he's going to be coming on and taking us around on sort of the guest garden tour. So I wanted to tease that tomorrow night. But uh, yeah, I'm excited for the, the Q&A show on here as well tonight. We're happy to have you back. And this week, we also have with us the American one, who I forgot to shout out last week, but I'm very happy to have you back. And I corrected that in the comments. So I didn't want anybody to think that uh, I was intentionally leaving Tao out. So welcome back, Tao. We're happy to have you. No worries. It's my fault. I thought I was going to be able to make like the end of it or, or the second half. But yeah, situation came up and I was unavailable. But thanks for uh, checking in with me tonight and hello everybody in chat i am the american one on the youtube and the american one underscore with underscore Keens on ig and yeah i'm always uh hanging out in chats everywhere so if you have questions hit me up at the ig and um or yeah whatever find me and uh yeah cool well while we wait for some questions to start rolling in i will uh, pass it back to you tao and ask since uh, we missed you last week just to get a little check-in how's your garden doing anything new and exciting or uh, what are the future plans on the horizon um yeah i got i have a bunch of time like my blueberries going right now i'm going to find the uh keep a, the keep a female and try and figure out the best male and i'm going to uh try and make a consistent uh you know, consist, more consistent seed of the kind of uh, the pheno or the genotype that I like, which about half of them are really good. And that's kind of like why I figured I'd try this one because it should be relatively, I think it will be, but knock on wood, uh, relatively easy to find the one that I, that I want and then be able to like maybe lock it in a little bit better. Um, other than that, uh, oh yeah, I made a, a batch of seeds and a couple that fell, I, I, uh, I put in the dirt right away to see if they would grow without any uh you know day of harvest They're, the plant is still wet and i put them in and i got three amy aces and i hit that chocolate tie that had no chocolate on it with the cheesequake mail anyway since i had it for so long and i wanted to see what maybe that'll bring it out you know maybe it'll change it bring out some flavor um and I actually did the same thing with the romberry by cheesequake. I was, I was, I spoke about that romberry a couple of times, but those didn't pop. So I don't know if they need a timeout break, but um, yeah, I'm letting those get drier and cure whatever. And 
yeah, I'll reinvestigate that again later when I separate them and shuck them and all. Other than that, uh, yeah, not too much. Uh, the landlord never went into the spot where I was all cleaned up and everything. I went through that already, but so that like, I have a little hesitation uh, or like, uh, I didn't put the one tent up yet. The plants aren't, the ones that I had go, were gonna go in there, I had to chop because they were just too big. I had no place for them, but I have, uh, they're coming up quick. So yeah, I'll be all back to 100% shortly. And yeah, that's about it now in my spot. Sounds exciting. Um, when you're looking for a particular blueberry, uh, you know, like, do you just try and find the best female that suits your liking? And then uh, how do you match that up with a male? All right, I'll tell you what happened. So someone specifically asked for some of them time right by a blueberry is the cross that I made. And when I went to pull them out and get them for them, because like I did, uh, some of mine I have packed, you know, I break them up into packs and some of them or just in jars, you know, and when people ask or need them, I'll make more, I, I'll pack them up more, you know? So when I went to go do that, I'm like, man, these look really small and they are pretty small compared to like the emiasis. Some of those get rather large, but I was just like, you know, I know I germ tested them before and I grew some out, but no, actually I, I, I know I germ tested them, but I must've not grown them out because this time I germ tested it again and I grew them all out and the shit was killer. There was like half of them were this crazy, super i wouldn't say sweet but it was like blueberry scone or blueberry muffin flavor that was way different than the violet beauregard which is like a kind of cheese blue not blue cheese but it has blueberry with like a cheese flavor on it but not i would yeah i don't like blue cheese anyway so i wouldn't know exactly but i don't think that's what it tastes what it smells it tastes like it's blueberry with a little bit of that cheese hint you know funk so i that's like blueberry funk and this time wreck by blueberry is like sweeter blueberry and I really liked it. And one, there was like, you know, four or five out of, I think I had 12 females when all was said and done. Four or five of them had like that really good smell and taste, but only one in particular really got me stupid, stupid high. So um, basically I'll be happy, yeah, if I find that really sweet blueberry fl- or sweeter blueberry flavor. And it's weird because the time rack has no sweetness to it at all. It's kind of like, um, I don't know. I said it before. I really don't know what that flavor or smell is, but it's definitely not sweet. And I was really surprised at how good it was, you know, when all was said and done. That's why I got all excited about it. And that's why I'm, I swatted up another swath of them and I'm going to hunt out that smell and flavor. And hopefully, they'll, you know, that one that gets you stoned. You know, people say, or I've heard people say that, oh, the, the, the can't, not the candy, but the fruity types don't aren't don't get you as high but i think that it, there is some that will get you as high as like the gassy stuff you know so yeah in my experience that you could definitely find ones that that will hit you hard yeah yeah i found that both ways like um a lot of people i think um sure. think both sides like they think berry stuff is going to be or fruity stuff is going to be like a stiva other people think that it's going to be more indica leaning I think a lot of that's just sort of what you think as such an impression upon what you're going to experience with it then too. For sure. And it's interesting. I haven't thought specifically about like sort of the terpene profile and like how high you get, like, you know, sort of on the, the speedometer scale of being high as opposed to sort of the variety scale of being high. Yeah, like I, I attribute terps like orange, for example. If I smell orange, like a really strong orange flavor, I'm going to expect uh, heady high, maybe yeah. slightly racy. Um, 
almost always like so there are hints i think to to different ones i've never smoked a strain that smelled like an orange that was like indica it couch locky never in my life it's it's always been like what kind of strain that was couch locky like an orange orange i've never had orange terps like strong orange terps that was couch locky it's always been your classic sativa type high it's bright like uh like waking you up like give you a little bit of energy a little pep and uh oh, but see that see you're talking about different styles of being high i'm just sort of thinking about like an aggregate scale sort of like you know ec everything's just tossed in there together and just yeah like, that's how high are you like one number that's what i was saying is like yeah you I, know. Don't think it's, I don't think it's an indication so much of potency per se as it is per Type. which way that terpene is going to drive the high yeah but you There's could so get like many... stupid high in either direction right like it, it's not that there's sort of one one way is going to be like higher than the other way yeah but you know i'll say that vortex has like thcv oftentimes and so does a lot of so cool stuff and that's known to have like more of a accelerator on that gas pedal or whatever it it pushes you up to a little bit higher high than a typical just uh regular thc would even in small like one to two percent or even less uh ratios thcv can be extremely before i forget let me say yeah, you know, it's so subjective. People that I know, people that smoke weed that'll put me to sleep, I'll get all jumpy and, and gung-ho and shit. And I think there's something to be said, like some of the uh, some of the weed that I smoke that is very potent, I'll take two hits and I'll be like, wow, man, I'm fucking stoned. And then some I'll take, smoke the whole joint. I mean, like, you know, I'm not that high. And then like 10 minutes later, I'm like, wow, this I'm fucking in another place, man. This is really yeah. good. So I think there's a lot to it that's subjective. It'd be hard to just make a potency scale, you know, and it'd be different for everyone. So that's my three cents on that shit. I think creeper highs, like you're describing, are definitely a thing where you smoke it and you don't feel it for a little bit. And maybe even like once you go out and change setting, like if you leave your house and go into the nature or somewhere outside or try and uh, do some work, even around the house, you're like, whoa, I'm a lot higher than I thought I was when I was just sitting here watching TV or talking with my buddies. When I had to get up and focus on something important, it's like I'm maybe not as good as I thought I was going to be. Um, and then the other thing is there's some stuff that hits you right away, but it doesn't have a sort of staying power. Like you'll be high for maybe 30, 45 minutes. And then you, at least for me, like, I feel like I come right down off a lot of that stuff that hits me right away versus the creepers. I tend to notice last a little bit longer, but I would be remiss in not uh, welcoming in Matthew Gates. And then after him, uh, we'll introduce Noah the who both just friend us. Yeah, it's Matthew Gates. Most of you know already, but for those who don't know, I'm an IPM specialist. So I specialize in helping people mitigate pests and I'm excited to be here. What's the topic, Jack? We're doing chat Q&A tonight, but we're just kind of uh, waiting for the questions to roll in, doing some updates. We started about being high and getting high. and stuff Yeah, like- Tao was talking about some of what he was selecting for with his blueberry. I asked like um, what type of thing in his phenos would he be looking for to work with and breed with? And he kind of was talking about the different highs and the different strains that he was working with. I saw Spartan Grown got asked probably the only question I've seen so far in the chat, which was, uh, what are you grinding up? And he answered, I think some bad girl. And that was from Anything Grows. So cheers to her and cheers to you, Spartan Grown. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that bad girl that you're smoking on? I'll go yeah. ahead and look for some questions. Yeah, the bad girl is, uh, well, it's bred by 2020 Mendocino and, um, this was uh, grown by her father. She so she was she brought me some today when I was out visiting her, and uh, I was excited to try it because I'd heard things, good things. And there's a couple people that I know that have grown it too. I just don't don't remember ever trying it, so I was super excited to try it. Especially anything 2020, I'm already interested to try. So uh, 
I tried someone I was down there with her and really liked it. So she gave me a little jar of it that I brought home with me. So I'm a big fan. It's uh let me see. Let me get a let me get a big whiff of it and I can maybe give a give an idea of the like the terp. So like to me, it's like it's so hard for me to describe it. But it's it's to me, it's like uh what I call like um like an earthy spicy smell uh spicy as in like um not like a hot spice like a pepper or anything like that but it's more like a, you opened up a spice cabinet it's just these weird different spices mix of spices i can't really pinpoint one but that kind of uh earthy spicy kind of smell but uh i don't know that that flavor kind of carries through the smoke too and it's just a unique terp that i don't hit a lot so uh i was really enjoying it Glad to hear it. I'm a fan of 2020 Mendocino. He's one of the maybe 40 or so breeders that I would say I, I can put my uh, word behind. If you buy their stuff, you'll be pretty happy with what you find. And um, we have gotten a couple questions rolling in. Thank you for describing that. And uh, it's cool that her dad grew it. I thought maybe it would have been her growing it, but it's cool to see the family getting involved in the operation. And, uh, you know, I, I love that. I think it's cool to be able to share with uh, family and loved ones and you know, spread the love and joy in the community of this amazing plant. So, some of the do best it. parts about this is just there's something about growing weed uh, that makes you just want to share the experience. It's not like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever, and you just want to hide it and not. No, the first thing that most everyone I know, the first thing you get something really, really good, you want to just share it. Hey, try this, you know. And that's just one of the best things about weed. It bring that's what builds that community. You got to get that confidence. I think once you really uh, knock one out of the park and you're, you got that thing that you feel proud of and you can show your friends, it uh, that's a great feeling. And I know whenever somebody gets that first good grow under their belt, they're a lot more uh, or a lot less hesitant to share it, maybe. And uh, I don't think I pass it back to Noah the Grower to get his introduction. So, yes. Noah, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm uh, Noah the Grower with two E's. You can find me on Instagram and uh, here with all you guys. Yeah, it's a. It, I love that when you have a good a good crop and you're able to show up with a jar and uh, you know it's really top notch. That's a that's such a great feeling. It's one of the things that I've uh, constantly chasing, even all these years later. It it will never get old to me. Handing off a really good jar of uh, some dank bud that you grew from one of your latest harvests and having somebody pop that lid and smell it and just watching the look on their face or listening to the reaction. Like sometimes it's. I, I kind of consider it involuntary. I'll like sometimes say like, oh my God, when I smell it. Or like I saw Frenchie smelled one of Brandon's jars and he was like, ooh la la. I'm like just, uh, I remember handing one to Tommy Chong and his face, he just like smelled it and he like had to like double take and smelled it again. And uh, I got, it was cool because my wife and I were at this uh, thing where he was actually on video when it was uh, happening. So that's a little moment that I kind of cherish there with one of my cannabis icons getting to smell and then later smoke and tap out on some of the herb that i grew it was a great time but that's uh something we should all strive for i think jack what strain was that chernobyl from tga nice nice and the other one that i had with me was strawberry decory also a tga collab with kyle cushman which was jack the ripper across to uh strawberry cough from cough. kyle cushman yeah. and it was really 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 heavy strawberry cough leaning the pheno that i picked it the one guy asked me did you grow this in a strawberry field or did you put strawberries in the soil or something? <laughs> and I was like, no, I just grew it in my regular organic soil. Like no, uh, you know, messing with the inputs, no additional anything to add flavor. This is exactly how it was bred and it tastes amazing. And I got very lucky with that selection. Should have kept the cut. I, uh, I'm actually going to reach out to uh, somebody who's 
still got a pack of that because I want to rehunt that and oh, maybe yeah. uh, work it into the velvet punch because I think strawberry and grape would go together. So yeah. jelly like. Did you but, ever have concentrated Chernobyl? Like, uh, yeah. yeah, that's some of the. Um, for Gurley made some Chernobyl concentrate from the stuff that uh, baked pone grew. Oh my god, dude. It was it's like insane. lime, there's like lime slurpy, slushy, oh, it's margarita. So it's just like yeah. it smacks you in the nose. I have a jar from Raw Garden out here. They have the slimer cut, and um, even an empty jar of this BHO from like years later, you crack it open and smell it, and it still reeks like that exact smell. So it's very, very powerful and uh, great flavor, great high. And uh, RIP Subcool, that was one of uh, my favorites from him. But Collective yeah. Mary Jane asks at Dr. MJ Coco, what is a good, cheap, home grow water system for a dwc i want to try dwc with my new medic grow i you can make a, a cheap dwc system i'm i'm i mean there's probably other people that talk about that have done sort of uh diy dwc systems beforehand you know i would just simply toss in since it was directed to me that you could do a, a auto water system over cocoa pots pretty easily too and i do have a guide for that on my site um but yeah dwc there's pretty easy ways to set up a, a simple res um you know get a pump run the pump in there and, and get a net pot and hang it down in there there's not a lot to a, a simple sort of dwc station so um i don't have a tutorial specifically on that has anybody on the panel set up a little dwc grow i used to grow dwc when i first started and it was like um kind of a knockoff of the current culture uh, DWC system. We had a bunch of five gallon buckets and we had a little uh, drill that we you know, busted holes in the bottom and piped thing to thing. And we did a reverse DWC setup. With oh, a, so recirculating. Yeah. Yeah. We, we recirculated the whole system through a That's more primary, much yeah. more complicated for sure. And um, to do a, a simple DWC, I mean, all you really need is an air stone and a five gallon bucket. Exactly. And, and a net pot, right? To like yep. lower it down into it. it, it exactly. So you can start a DWC system really quite simply. Um, you don't need to get any sort of special kind of tote or whatever. You could just like- I saw a dude it. with foam pool noodle. <laughs> he just cut holes. He was using <laughs> it as awesome. a cloner. And then he just used a bigger foam pool noodle cut as his net pot. And the okay. stock just went down. Uh, you know, I, I prefer a net pot because I think supporting that first little initial few inches of the roots allows it to kind of broaden out a little bit more than like how a clone would just in like a DWC or whatever type cloning system. You see the roots will come out a little bit to the sides, but they're not as supported uh, directly out to the side uh, left and right. So I, I do believe that the net pot is worth the however many cents or dollars it might cost uh, for the DWC setup. And some people throw hydroton or other little like clay pebbles or um, like lava rock, whatever works in there. Um, whatever like the preferred thing. I like those hydrogen because you can just rinse them off and reuse them. Yeah, that's a great point. But um, I was going to say, I've used the, just the, I forget who made them, maybe Hydro Farm or whatever, the little DWC buckets. They're not the, they weren't connected. It's just little buckets like you guys are saying. Yeah, they individual the, totes. They had the little halos that would uh, do the top watering and water through into the DW, into the DW. Okay. And it was run off of uh, air. Like it, it wasn't even pumped. <laughs> so it was cool. It was connected to the airlines. So the airlines were blowing water in the bottoms and it was also creating suction to run the little fucking, just recirculate the water through the top and go through those hydrogen pellets through okay. the net pot. But those work pretty good is my only complaint is, is like you, you really struggle. And the biggest struggle for me with DWC was the temperature water temperature yeah and, water temperature is a concern yeah and um, if you can't keep it cold 
I only ran them in the wintertime and kept them right on the ground, right on, right on the cement floor. And uh, they ran beautiful when they were cold like that. So if you could afford a water chiller, it's going to make your life so much better. And, and that's really the sort of the downside of DWC systems is eventually you got to change out your water um, because you'll grow bacteria in there. And, you know, you try to do the best you can. You try to keep it sort of running clean and you can top it off. But eventually you got to you got to clean that whole thing out and you end up sort of dumping a lot of water when you, when you do that. Um, so the, the cooler you can run your tank, the less often you'll have to do a full tank change. Um, if you're running a warmer tank, you're going to be growing bacteria almost as fast as you're growing cannabis in there. So, um, that's always sort of a challenge when we do high frequency fertigation and cocoa, it's a challenge too, but we can at least keep the reservoir outside of the grow space. So it's not sort of like underneath the lights and in that warmer space. Um, but I think we've covered that quite a bit on the show before too. Water temperature is a big deal for growing healthy plants. For so many different reasons. And uh, like Spartan said, it's kind of a little bit oxymoronic when you are a grower who doesn't use TWC to talk about putting your plants on the floor in the winter, because if it was soil or cocoa, you'd be like, oh man, that's going to slow your plants down, get them up half inch to an inch, you know, use a milk crate or something like that, whatever you got to do, get them off. Those little pot risers work great. I was just talking to somebody today about, um, it was, I think on a smart poker post, uh, talking about how they're growing in one gallon cocoa pots. And, uh, when they, they were saying one of the downsides to that is you're going to have less cold resistance. And I was like, well, cold resistance in a cocoa pot. I'm like, it, it is a thing for sure. But even if you had a larger pot and if it's sitting directly on the floor, you're going to be much worse off than even a one gallon pot that's elevated a half inch to an inch. So worth considering if you're on, especially like uh, stone, concrete, uh, even hardwood, you know, it depends what under, is underneath it. If it gets really cold in the winter, put your hand on there. If it's too cold for your hand and things like that, it's going to definitely slow your plant down and, and impact the performance in a pretty negative way. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking that the same thing with my little seedlings I've got growing now. I'm thinking they're growing a little bit slow just because it's been chilly and not as sort of warm. It, I've been, it tends to been in the low 70s instead of like the low 80s where it would normally be for seedlings and they'd be popping much more. So um, yeah, it is. But if you're in DWC and you're keeping your tank, you want to keep your tank just under 70, ideally. So yeah, it is definitely one of the differences there. And that's a good tip for people that are maybe not knowing that they're DWC growers and they are, is the people that are using cloners. It's another good thing. Just put that cloner on the ground. It can help you with a lot of issues. If you're struggling with making those things work, just to getting that water temperature down really helps. Cloning is tough though, Spartan. You get the cloning water too. I mean, this is always the challenge with, with water temps, right? Like the colder the water is, the more oxygen it holds. And that's awesome. Plants love a lot of oxygen in the water. But the colder the water is, it slows down everything else. Just like, you know, you going swimming in a freezing cold lake, it's going to be, it's going to slow you down. You're not going to be like as limber and, and speedy, right? So it slows yeah. down plants metabolism and it can shock them. So with clones, it's, it's, it's tough call. You can definitely go too cold and, and sort of shock the, the root buds and, and not get roots that way too. Yeah, but I haven't experienced it yet. That's totally fair. I would say more people are on that side of too warm and biofilm and stuff builds up and bacteria and, and uh, things like that are going to be more common. But uh, it's just good to know about both sides and everybody's situation. Like if you're in the North Pole, uh, like our 
old friend, Miss Nudie Grows. She used to be up there. She's been all around Canada since, but uh, our old host used to say, like, the, my favorite grower from the North Pole. And she yep. was really, like, actually way up there. So it gets freaking cold in Canada. And uh, I remember Boom Farms used to say, like, when it's negative uh, 50 Celsius or negative 50 Fahrenheit, like, it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> it's just so cold. Like, I think they actually, like, get closer to each other in temperature in those really, really cold situations. But back on track here, we've got a good question. He said, uh, somebody, I don't think we got the name on it, said, at Sheep Home Grow, about day 21 and 42 defoliation, have done it last few grows, not sure about yield, but makes trimming much easier. Dr. MJ mentioned it was not a good practice. So I'll pass that to Doc, and uh, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on why you don't prefer those timelines for removing leaves. Day 21 is right at the end of the flowering bolt, usually. Um, and plants have then stopped vegetative growth, and they're going into flowering growth. I believe the reason that it started to become a popular time to defoliate plants is because plants have a harder time recovering. And so they don't suddenly grow back a whole bunch of leaves when you when you grow them off because they've entered into flowering growth. But it, it puts a lot of stress on your plants and they're not prepared to sort of recover from the injury well because they're no longer vegetatively growing. So it, it's far better to the extent that you have to injure your plants for training. And, and there's reasons to prune leaves off of the plant um, to try to get that done sort of the week before day 21 so that the plants can more easily recover from that injury and, and sort of more seamlessly segue into purely uh, reproductive growth. Um, it, later on, you know, another three weeks after that, I, I really, I don't see any significant advantage to that. That's at peak sort of um, flower bulking stage of the process. Uh, you know, if there's a really compelling reason to cut a leaf at that point, I might be convinced to, but otherwise I'm not going to touch my plant at, on day 42 for purposes of, of sort of redistributing the, the photon load um, to other leaves in the plant. That's going to make the plant adjust. And that adjustment is going to take energy away from the plant, fattening up the flowers. And all I want the plant to be doing at that stage is fattening up the flowers. I would so, say uh, there's a trade-off. Is it like, is it worth the potential negative impact on yield to uh, make it a little bit easier to trim? And in my perspective, I would say no. Um, it's worth that few extra minutes or hours, however long you grow it, it takes to trim up. Um, at the end, if you want to give yourself the best quality and, and best yield, in my opinion, and I think the best practices would say it's probably not the greatest idea, but it, it can work and has been implemented in some settings, but I don't think that makes it ideal. Um, I've talked about in the past how I did it myself as far as schwazing, but I also did the 2142 uh, Mango Tech or, um, you know, Green Jeans Garden, a few other people I've seen advocate for it. And they show like before and after photos, like the next week, the plant does start to shoot out new leaves and then you fill back in, but at the cost of what? Like Doc was just saying, there's only so much energy. There's only so much light, so much light, especially in a home grow setting. Most of us are indoor. Um, if you're outdoor, I think there's a little bit uh, more management practices that have to be considered. Like Spartan mentioned, a lot of stuff gets extremely leafy outdoor, and removing leaves is more of a practice for you know preventing mold and allowing airflow. And there's lots of other side benefits. But indoor, we're talking about capturing light, uh, storage of you know uh, sugars and things like that that are going to potentially boost up your butts throughout the grow and ripping them off is going to make it, even if you try to pour nutrients back on, I think it is going to be a lot less productive in my experience. And from what I've seen across uh, well, a lot of different growth. I mean, how many leaves are we talking here? You know, and then that's not, that's another thing. They go pretty heavy. They strip it damn near to the, just the stock. Uh, yeah. That's, I would definitely not do anything like that. 
Um, I, I, you know, everyone has their own experience. Too, though. I mean, yeah. I mean, if everybody has their own has their own experience, and you're when you're talking about light, everybody doesn't have the same light. You're talking about environment. No one has the same environment. You're talking about different strains. There's a lot of factors to go into this, but if you're talking are, about taking are off, any of them considering those factors in reality, I would I would hope so. If you're listening to this show, right. I hope you're considering those factors. And if you're considering those factors, you're not going to do a prescribed thing on a set day every single grow anyways, right? Like that whole philosophy yes. is not Great tailored point. to a grow. This is like... No. It's a live plant. It's a biological yeah. thing. It is different each grow. Some runs, you crush it. My last run, I'm dialed in. Everything's looking pretty damn good. I'd say like maybe a nine out of 10. But the run before that was like intentionally a stressed run. I was trying to see if the plants could handle a certain amount of stress and overwatering, underwatering, too much, too little light, really screwing with them as much as I could. Um, that grow did not have anywhere near the level of uh, dial in that the other one was. So the, that makes a big difference when it comes to uh, how the plant develops and how much leaf I have to remove versus uh, what I would want to. And like I said, I've kind of done it both ways. And not to say that that gives that's anecdotal experience. It doesn't say that I know uh, 100% either way. But from what I've seen, the aggressive leaf strips um, might make your plants look really beautiful. But I, I would caution just because um, it's like Doc was saying, it's so it's almost like a specific thing like that. If you just br blanket apply anything to growing, I think you're going to run into some roadblocks because um, not every grow is going to work out the same way. Even if you want to go in thinking, I'm going to mainline this time, you top it, it starts growing a little bit weird. Sometimes you got to adapt, make it grow to your space, make it work for your environment. But um, yeah, I think having a pre preset kind of plan every single time for like how heavily you're going to remove leaves in a certain stage of growth is can be problematic and it should if, maybe if I, I your just, leaves are if your leaves are kind of like in the middle of like let's say you have like a scrog grow or you have like a grow there's like a bunch of like branches coming up and you can see two or three leaves that are like clearly blocking all the growth and you move them you can see the light getting to them maybe take off two or three complete leaf strip i'm completely out i'm never doing that but yeah. constantly i'll see a whole patch of buds right here that's not getting any light there's a leaf there. I'll take that leaf the off. Buds don't I'll fucking the tuck light. it. No, uh, the, the, the light, buds the, don't need the light. The leaves need the light. The, the leaf, I understand the what you're is saying, just wasted light. I have had experience with this myself, and I I firmly believe the few leaves being taken off at the right time is not going to hurt it. And I do think day twenty one isn't a I bad. Mean, I'm not going to push back against. See, that. okay, but see, this, this is what is exactly I this is this is, this is what I meant. This is what I meant when I said. When I said, I don't want people thinking that I just interrupted just to be snide, okay? This is what right. I meant when I said, like, are we actually considering it? Because right. it's a difference between saying, like, ah, maybe this will be helpful, you know, or actually having, like, a reason, an actual reason. There's, there isn't. And, and the reason would never occur on day 42 or whatever. I mean, nothing's happening to the garden at that point. Leaves aren't suddenly laying down on top of each other, or covering up buds on day 41. That, that's not happening. Right. The plant is almost stationary at that point, And it's just sort of barely perceptibly growing the flowers every day. If you look at it under time lapse, you can see the flowers very slowly getting bigger. But other than that, the plant, this is the boring part of the grow. And I kind of believe that a, a defoliation practice at that time is to like make the plants do something like and, Bro, and doing that will make the plants do something. But Dr. But, Coco, I agree with what you're saying. 
in your grow. But not every yeah, exactly. grow. Yeah, listen, no, is the, is is the physiology true. different? What? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So fundamentally, sizes. is the I know people who grow plants. Different? I know people who grow indoor with one HPS light and grow a six, seven foot tall plant. That right. If you didn't leaf strip, you would not have a harvest by the end of the time. 100 percent you would have no so harvest. you're saying there's people not, that not a harvest that you two can days sell. after the flip their plants are still growing is what you're saying say what 42 days after the flip the plants no. are still growing no not day 42 i wasn't saying that i was saying just i'm not i'm advocating saying that there is reasons an indoor grows to leaf strip oh i, I am did too, too, I am too. No, i'm not saying that you don't ever cut leaves off the plant i'm saying on day 42 yeah i agree with 42 aren't growing i've done it on day I've, 42 I've done it before and it gives you, in my experience, it gave me prettier buds with less of them, like, like less quality, a lot, not less quality. I, I had less quantity at the end. Yeah. I, my suffer, I yield, my yield suffered a lot. I don't see a big yield loss if you do the earlier leaf strip, but if you do that late leaf strip, it is a lot easier to um, clean up the plant at the end for sure. But you have to remember you're forgetting that you, how much time did you put into leaf strip at that late leaf strip? That was time that you had to, to invest into the plant yes. that you really wouldn't have. So you got to. And the trichomes on your arms and hands and scissors and things that you're taking <laughs> yeah, off while that, you're doing that it. Too, yeah. Every time I remove a leaf, I'm guilty of it. I had like a leaf that was just dying off. I reached through, tried to be pretty good. I tapped it with my arm and my arm was like covered like a big patch, like super <laughs> gluey. And I'm like, damn, it's, it smells good. I'll smell myself for the rest of the next few hours. But that came off the plant. And it's not going back. So here's another yeah, thing. Well, Dr. Coco is, is looking at it from a, a LED point of view. I grow HPS. Ah. I've been growing HPS for 11, almost 12 years matter. now. It doesn't and matter. HPS, it's, not a, it's not a light. It's not a light thing. From, it's like the thing. from my experience, if you take off, I'm not, I would never do day 42, and I would never take off a leaf to save time for trimming. That's a, you never hear a grower who knows they're talking about doing that. But a few leaves in the middle. It, another trick you could do is you can tuck them. I tuck leaves constantly. You guys have seen my grows. Every I've posted, I've posted my grow in this grow show probably more than anyone yeah, here. I'm, and I'm so, have you ever arguing. seen my plant strip? I'm not no, doing that. I'm not doing that. So, it, you know, we're not arguing. Each grower needs to on. figure out their own niche. Just like like Spartan said, if you're an HPS grower and you're growing a big plant, which I do grow. You're going to have to, to give or take here and there, and you're going to have to adjust on the fly. It, it's not the same as growing in a tent with an LED. Okay? Can I ask why you think growing under an HPS is different than growing under an LED for this reason? Well, I can't honestly answer that because I haven't I'll had answer. a lot of experience growing. I'll answer. I've grown source. under both. I know. I'll answer. There's a huge hot spot underneath an HPS plant, which makes you have a different cultivation practice. So you're going to want to spread it out a lot more. With an H LED, the light is more uniform, a so you can grow with a hot spot in terms of heat or a hot spot in terms of PPFD, PPFD and heat. heat. Because if you look uh -huh. at the spectrum, they're synonymous with an HPS. Sixty percent of the electricity comes out in light. Forty percent comes out in heat. It's actually not five nanometers. Yeah. I, I it's know. not in the photosynthetic realm at all. It is a hundred percent infrared heat, which is coming out, which is why it's a little bit less efficient than I want to play the LEDs. Yeah, no, on the there's whole only 40% energy transfer to light and 60% comes off as heat. There so we go. LEDs that get oh. closer to 80% of that transfer into light and, you know, closer to 20% off as heat. Um, that's how LEDs are sort of twice as efficient. But the light in, in both cases is, is 
basically the same. HPS is, is not as well distributed. So you're actually trying, the, the best light is right in the middle. And in LED, since the light is better distributed across the canopy, you get sort of the, the best light over a broader area. Within HPS, it was really hard to get, you know, sort of a dense enough array of HPS figures to get an even enough distribution of light. Um, you can do it in a pretty big room, but in either case, like the the light is the same. So I, I mean, and, and the leaves harvesting the light, maybe they need to be further away or closer or something. But I, I don't know that there's another difference in terms of why one would require more more leaf cutting and the other I'll just would say require this. less leaf cutting. They never look the same. The plants under a C a HID bulb, a, a CMH, or an uh, HPS, they always look much different. I can tell you from looking at a plant. I follow okay. 7,500 growers. I watch thousands of growers every single year. And I can tell you 10 out of 10 times, this is an LED plant, this is an HPS plant, whether in flower, because the way that the bud structures are developing, I don't see we anybody that. that gets the same roundness. We you should can, we'll totally doc, do that. Can make a, make like a slide a, show net for next week's show. We'll question. do a little PowerPoint and you can say, Jack, these are growers. I mean, it's going to be obvious with the spectrum or whatever. It'll be able to see, but exactly. you can do black and white. Black and, and white. There's gonna be like a blurple picture. You really, uh, <laughs> yeah. That'll uh, be the that'll be the bingo on the bingo board. That'll be the one. I think that it's a little a little bit disingenuous to say that they're the same light because if you look at the spectrum graphs, the HPS is a very distinct. It goes up, down, over, and there's like a huge peak in the center. There's a little bit of red, a little bit of blue. If you look at the HPS, say, it's Jack, all over the, the place, and there's a lot of stuff that's this, not in LED. Could, they could copy it. So the actual science that Bugby has done and his students have done have tested different concentrations of blue and red light during the flowering period, and they've come up with absolutely no impact that that has on the harvested yield or, or the harvested quality or the, the concentration of cannabinoids. So... Like a lot of growers believe that that spectrum changes and the differences between sort of, you know, different bulbs and different is LEDs. Is there UV and LED? What's that? Is there UV and LED? There can be. There can you be. In to. the current oh, LEDs that we're me? using to grow. Let's be honest. Let's be genuine right now. Is there UV currently in a 3,500K LED bulb? At the same, the, uh, same level. Wait, wait, the one Jack, I got. Not in the diode, but LEDs make, make light differently. So if you want UV, you need to include UV diodes. In I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about do the current LEDs that you and I and everybody else grow with, the 3500 Kelvin. The regular, I mean, I'll say this. My grow light right now does not have any UV. All okay, of my LEDs of do not. do, Jack. Or, yeah, or I got trace with, with trace amounts. I mean, they have diodes for UV diodes. You can certainly. But you talked about the efficiency of them and how they're so low and they're being thrown in there. Jack, okay, buddy, let's not argue about this. There's no evidence that UV is beneficial for cannabis. I'm not saying that it either. is. I'm just saying that they're not the same. It's not. It's. I just don't think that's genuine to call an HID. But I'm talking about as an LED spectrum. And you're talking about other things that are, are not as important as flux. So I'm thinking about the amount of light that's hitting the plants, which is the primary sort of metric in terms of how much photosynthesis is going to happen, how much bud you're going to be able to grow, all of those things. But it's you would admit you would admit that light. there's a reaction to certain types of light, such as what, what order form UV and even blue lights do have shortening effects on cannabis growth. During vegetative growth. Yes. Right. Not during flowering. But exactly. And but the, the, the thing is, and the I don't think we have enough data that currently known because the in generalities. the 1970s, we said that UV was effective and it did increase THC. Tau can pull up all the old articles. 
touting that UV is so beneficial. My grow has done hemp grows and cannabis grows in Europe where they're comparing with UV included and saying that their terpenes are increasing and their cannabinoids are increasing. So there are people out there that are using UV and implementing it in yeah, side by sides and saying that they're in, having benefit. So just because I, Bruce Bugby why are you in one lab, me though now, why are you, why are you taking no, this just, tone with me? Like, I'm not trying to take that tone with you. So maybe we could just step off or something. I'm, I'm offering but an like, example you and, and, and counterpoint. And, no, we're like, I've been trying to like pick a fight with me or something. I don't want to pick a fight with you. I've we got my opinions out there about who, this who stuff. You guys are feelings. welcome to have your opinions about it. That's that's totally fine with me. I'm absolutely not trying to pick a fight, bro. No, we're no just way. Trying to share I'm just trying to sit, tell you my point of view from my grow. That's all I'm trying to tell you. I understand your point wrong, of view. Bro. I'm not I'm not trying to be combative at all, Dr. Filter. Just, just no, I'm going to ask a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me jump in. Because I want to go all the sure. way back to the uh, leaf strip. Listen, I don't know what science says. I don't know what whatever. Yeah. But I know people who strip their plant at that day twenty-one. Yeah. And I know I know some commercial operations. I think that do it. And whatever the reason, they're not complaining, and they stay in business to have enough uh, yield at the end, to, you know, to make things work. But there's also plants that when you chop off half of the plant, it grows back twice as better. In, in nature, you know, like who knows of the phenomenons that we don't know about, even concerning Actually, the cannabis plant. So, so there. And that's then, a really good point. That's a Actually, good point. I have, theory, I have point. a theory about that, Tao, and why that's better. Um, at Mitten, we, we grew our cannabis way denser, way denser than what the average home grow, for sure, and way taller. We had a deeper and, and wider, <laughs> but we had way, a lot of plants in there. So it was almost, uh, necessity to at least from the bottom up two thirds take nearly every leaf but my theory that i want to get to why it's better the, as the leaves as the plant develops and grows it's going to shoot out those leaves and that's in the best area to catch all the light it can and it actually kind of moves to catch the light as well yeah as it grows you know as the plant continues to grow those leaves that originally were formed in the best spot are no longer in the fucking best spot anymore <laughs> they're not being as effective and they've also aged and they're not as efficient as they, they once were so when you remove these especially lower leaves and older leaves they're replaced by new leaves that are much more much more efficient and beneficial to the plant but the caveat is here is, the, is like I will side with Dr. Coco at, at this part is that late stage one doesn't make sense. It's yeah, you got to give it time to be able to get that new leaf set up. It's got to come back in. I've always noticed those new leaves coming smaller the day too. One makes sense because right at the yeah. end of the stretch, it makes yeah. sense to trim the leaves. Then day twenty one makes sense in the same aspect of the thought process I was going along yeah. because the plant is uh, done growing upward. It's not going to get any higher than it is at but that in point. In terms of plant physiology, it's actually redirecting its energies from vegetative growth and repairing injuries is a form of vegetative growth to reproductive growth. But we're not growing is, the plants to make right, the, plants the most healthy. Okay, I was, I was, yeah, that's our, that's the yeah, we're not, you just want to yeah. do a lecture. Me, so I'm going to put my mic on here. No, 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 but, but I'm saying, listen, you're listen. saying, I agree with what you're saying. Listen. And I, for to grow the plant to make it to its, its, its best survivability. But that's not what we're doing. Well, that's not what we were doing. I'm not, I'll exclude yeah. everyone on the panel. That's not what we were doing with the plant. We were just trying to get the biggest yield of its flower, and that was it. Not me, the biggest me, yield of its flower. The biggest quality right? yield of its flowers. We it could. depends on how big the plant is. When you Some of the yes. leaves I take off, if you move the leaf out of the way, right, of the light, you yeah. look underneath it, there's other leaves that are going to capture all that fucking light. 
Yeah. So it might not be as close to the light, which might be a detrimental loss. But like you know, See, what all I'm of saying? those thoughts are wrong. Like if the there's light. another yeah. leaf that's going to catch the le- the light, then nothing has been lost, except so for the fact it. that the leaf that was catching the light in the first place was a sun leaf, and the leaf that you away. just exposed was a shade leaf. And the plant has to reposition and reallocate yeah, energies in order to be able to do photosynthesis in shade leaves. So, I think for I think for me, yeah, right. like that's the, that's where that's I keep a, coming yeah, yeah, back yeah. with this question is like, 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 like. If I ask any of you why you think what you think, and your answer is, well, I'm pretty sure, or I believe this to be the case, but you're not familiar with how plants grow, and you're not familiar with how the physiology, I'm talking about exactly this. I have what we know about how plants grow from a scientific perspective, right? Like things right. that have been validated and confirmed. Like, of course, that's going to like... Like different colors of light. You're nowhere. More but, deeply but, yeah, but for, example, but for example, Matthew, where would we... What should the average grower think when every time that they don't clean their plant of big fan leaves? I don't suggest harvest- doing that. Why don't you ask me what I suggest doing instead of just pigeonholing me and, and, and sort of straw manning me and saying, like, I say you should never cut any leaf off of a plant. And this is fairly disrespectful. And I'm trying to have a good attitude about it. But I don't, I don't know what's going on here, guys. I'd say we agree okay, about 95% well, I wasn't even speaking of, at you at this you time. About. I was talking to Matthew. And I just, let me finish what I was saying. And what I was um, uh, getting at is, and, and this is my experience as well, is that if you just, especially outdoor, <laughs> if you just let a plant go and you come back to it at the end and you harvest it, all of the bud sites at the bottom that had, you know, not very much exposure to light are underdeveloped, far smaller. If you go into and have, I know it's not the exact same plant, but the following year and you clean up that plant and it has less leaves and more light exposure and those lower buds are bigger and you get a better yield. I mean, I might not have the science to tell you why that was, but I have the experience that kind of reinforces that idea. And that's why. Okay. And that's the difference between an anecdotal evidence and a scientific study. But I think that's not the difference. Well, it's one of, it's one of the differences. Yeah, you know, the science changes if you guys haven't realized from what they thought of in the 70s, how plants grow and what they know of now. So I'll just throw that in the mix to get everybody. Not actually very much has changed, Tao, but. Well, they learned um, new things. Yeah, they learned a lot of new things. They they learned a few, but they knew quite a bit about how plants work back in the 70s, too. And that's sort of the last question of people that are, are spreading rumors is to basically say, oh, well, scientists don't know much anyways. And this isn't the kind of, of, of content that I'm, I'm really comfortable even putting out. Like either, I mean, we're not supposed to be a rumor mill, right? We're not supposed to be doing these kinds of things. We say what we know and we talk about that kind of stuff and we can all have our own opinions about things. But like, I, I don't know, something's going, this is a different show than what we normally do. I'll say at times we just want to avoid being a echo chamber. And if we all disagreed on every single topic, then we wouldn't have really much of a discussion. And we weren't attacking you personally. We're trying to attack the idea. I look at this kind of like a Socratic seminar. We all bring our ideas to the table and we all try and, you know, learn more and and expand upon them. And one of the things like Matthew was talking about, we have to, I think it's best to use the most modern science and some of the things that we do know. But one of the comments that you made that I felt I needed to respond to was about saying that they're essentially the same. And I feel like that they're not. 
because of my experience, because of what I've seen in the science and like what I talked about just a few moments ago, how we have seen, like if I was growing with just green LED, not that I do that, but if I was, it's going to have different effects than just red or through the yeah. full stage of growth. I recently versus made a blue. video about this, Jack, on, on how different spectrums and how LEDs work and why we don't use monochromatic LEDs. Right. Yeah. It's not a great idea, right? So you wouldn't suggest growing with monochromatic. Correct. So you can admit that there are spectrums that are worse than other spectrums. Yeah, but we're talking about grow lights that are concentrating yeah, I know. their and energy by and my, large in the PAR spectrum. But by and large, HPS, the old older ones were not. Okay, Jack. That's, that was just the two things that we were comparing just a few minutes ago. We were talking the, about... The concept, and, and the reason I think that, that you kind of cut in at that point is I was asking... Noah, because he he made this comment about how it was how I was used to LEDs, and he was growing under HPS, and how that made a difference in terms of whether or not you would cut off leaves to expose flowers at that point. Um, and I, I wanted to know what was different because the light was the same. You're talking about the the heat, um, and it, it sounded the, like he thought there was a difference. With. The what I was getting, the okay, he, he, he was getting, what I was trying to get at is if he thought that the light penetrated more because there's this idea of penetration in, in the grower community that is different. And some growers really believe that like, and I don't know if Noah has these thoughts or not, in terms of HPS light being sort of more powerful light and, and being able to like penetrate through the canopy deeper. But that's a, a common thought that I've come across. And I was trying to sort of tease that out in terms of when I said the light is is the same. Certainly there can Do be- Do we definitively have a, a, a statement saying HPS does or does not penetrate more than any other, like an LED? Is that something that has been- examined fairly thoroughly because when I've looked into something like that I, from what I understand they do operate relatively the same when you're talking about like the flux where it's if you're measuring a certain spot a thousand ppfd is a thousand ppfd depending on the the reader or whatever but my question is also more so like what do the other things it's not what we know for sure it's what we don't know and it's like what are the other parts of that spectrum that make up that 60 percent that are not in photosynthetic light how does that impact the plant that heat it's not being in there synthetic light it's in it's in heat that's what i'm it's saying ir yeah infrared infrared heat is different than being hit by if the same amount of energy is dumped into the room there's like in btus is the amount of heat that comes out and all light eventually becomes heat so there's like 3400 btu per thousand watts of electrical right. energy from my understanding and so 410 about yeah it's almost pi backwards it's like well just the last two digits it's 3.41 so you multiply the watts times 3.41 to get the BTUs. So if you have a thousand watt light, you'd multiply that by 3.41, that's 3,410 um, BTUs per hour, basically running that thousand watt light. And, and it, it really doesn't matter if it's a thousand watt LED or if it's a thousand watt HPS, it just matters if there's a thousand watts coming out of the wall. And I just wanted to throw one last statement before we go into a really simple question that I know you're going to be able to answer easily for the crowd. But the reason I was kind of thinking about this is like, I'm thinking like an indoor plant grown versus an outdoor plant. There's a lot of differences. I think many of us can admit to that. The sun has a lot more to the spectrum. And I, I was wondering how much of the difference between an LED or an HPS makes a difference. I know it's not gonna be the same as indoor versus outdoor, but it makes me think if there's more of the quote unquote outdoor things in an HPS or an HID bulb, 
then maybe that would be part of the relevance to it. Outdoor things are not considered important for photosynthesis. That's why we focus on the four to 700 range in, in, in terms of light energy. Um, but that just got pushed open too, didn't it? Outside of that range, I mean, a we've, little tested, bit. we've tested infrared, we've tested, um, you know, ultraviolet. Um, the, the infrared up to about 735, somewhere in that range, um, is photosynthetic. And then it's just not above there. Um, and we've been able to, to test that pretty thoroughly. Now, some of the light that's higher in, in nanometers and wavelength, um, is still plant biologically active, but it's no longer photosynthetic. So we need to kind of tease out a little bit more in terms of what exactly we're talking about, but the photosynthetic range is pretty clearly from the high 300s, so around 380 to about 735, based on sort of the best latest knowledge. And th that's gotten pretty specific. Um, yeah. We've been able to really dial that in with lasers and advanced LEDs. Because they know the exact nanometer of the laser down to that 385, or before it was like a blue LED diode that we was 400, filters. but it also put out 380. Yeah, literally and filters to to like set a shade light in different in different wavelengths, and it was far less accurate to sort of really know, and we couldn't sort of tailor right in on those spectral edges to see what happened. Um, there's also a tail at both ends, sort of as it goes out, it doesn't sort of like fall off a cliff like the old pyre diagrams would sort of suggest. It, it sort of gradually diminishes, um, but it's pretty steep, you know, when, once you're outside of the 400 to 700 um, range. There. The plant biologically active radiation is the stuff that I'm kind of interested in. And I know that there's also so much more outdoor, like from the weather, the changes and things like that, that play a lot of that role that we don't consider when we're just talking about light as in such a narrow band of focus. But another light related question, I think that you'll be very well equipped to answer is, Dr. MJ Coco, where do I find a good PPFD chart that is easy for a <laughs> beginner to understand? Wow. So I think you might just need to know what PPFD is or talk a little bit about PPFD because PPFD chart, like a PAR map, would like I make when I test the light or what like, grow light companies will publish or th these little squares that each square has a number in it um, that shows the density of light at different places along the intended canopy. That is a PPFD chart. All of those numbers are PPFD values. Um, PPFD is photosynthetic photon flux density. So it's counting the density of micromoles that hit that spot in the canopy or that theoretically would hit your plants. Um, the, the levels that I recommend for growers without supplemental CO2 are a 500 micromole minimum, a 700 micromole average, and a thousand micromole limit. So you, you wanna keep the maximum less than a thousand. Um, if you are running supplemental CO2, you can go higher than that, but I really recommend that you, you get to that point because you have to seal the space for climate reasons. Um, if you have to seal the space for climate reasons and you've decided that you're going to use air conditioning and dehumidification to set your climate parameters, at that point, then you can supplement carbon dioxide and run a higher level of light intensity. But it's not worth it just to sort of crank up the light. You really need to to need it for the climate advantage, at least from a home grower's perspective for that to make any sense. Um, so that's the, the most I think you really need to know about PPFD as you're going out in the world is you want at least 500, you want no more than a thousand. 
Um, and when you're looking at those maps, if the ma if the number has more than a thousand, then you're not really going to be able to run the light at that hanging height, anyways. Um, so find a, a par map that sort of the highest number in the middle is around a thousand. Check out what the corners are. They should be you know, at least 500 at that point. And then be aware that there's a lot of ways that manufacturers in particular may want to cheat on their on their tests when they measure PPFD, um, like putting in a reflective floor or reflective ceiling. Some of them just test in a grow tent because they think that'll sound good. It's actually a way of goosing the numbers because you, you just have a reflective floor and a reflective ceiling. And you might think like, well, I'm going to grow in a grow tent but you're going to grow in a grow tent that's got plants in it that are sucking up those photons. And they're not just sort of bouncing around the room, you know, hitting the target several times. Something's catching them. And, and hey, they, hey, Doc. Yeah. How about for clones and seedlings? What, what should that be about? You know, you can clones. I like to start pretty low, um, especially at the beginning of cloning. Um, seedlings do so. Clones, I'd go down to even like 150 ppfd, um, 200. Seedlings can start at, at 300, um, and usually I I have 300 ppfd light on the top or 250 or so um, when you know, they're first sort of emerging and that's as an up indication for the seeds once they're in their jiffy pellets, that the light is one of the primary sort of up indicators. So I put a light on them and then, um, yeah, I kind of keep them there 300, 400 up to about 500 by the time they have three nodes for seedlings. And, and the same sort of deal with the clones. I'd keep them under pretty low light, like 150 or 200 until they start growing roots, like so day six, day seven. And day six, day seven, you can start working that up again. Um, you know, the issues with cloning are a little bit different because light, light often, the plant's already able to, to transpire and photosynthesize um, when you're cloning a cutting. So you have to be worried about sort of water loss out of the plant. Um, you don't want to put too much of a light load on the plant because that'll encourage more transpiration, which will encourage dehydration before the cutting has roots to sort of replace the water. Makes sense. Now, one last question, which is in general too. Yeah. Would you allow the plants to grow into the light or would you have the light move up as they grow? Well, I do that early based on PPFD. So this is like the one time I use my sensor in my grow when I'm growing seedlings. And I can dial my grow light right down on top of the plants mm -hmm. because they're just little plants. They fit in one saucer, like all my plants in one saucer with a little quantum board grow light, like, you know, four or five inches above them. I stick the, the quantum sensor in there and then I dial the dimmer down until it's the PPFD that I want. Um, and, and I'll keep them like that, pr running pretty close uh, on a dimmer, and you do have to raise them as they grow up. It, once you're giving your seedlings enough light and really dialing it in, they don't kind of, they don't grow as tall anymore. So, um, you know, if you're used to seedlings growing several inches a day or growing, I mean, not several inches a day, but being kind of taller seedlings, part of that is lack of light. Um, if you're kind of giving them enough light, they'll grow a much tighter node structure so they don't sort of grow as, as quickly. 
Um, and that's just to efficiently use light during the, the seedling stage, like when they all fit under the light. Once the plants get bigger that they don't sort of fit under the light anymore, you got to raise the height of the light and allow the light to spread out more. So you got to crank out the dimmer more or use a different light or whatever. Perfect. Cool. I love having a dimmer for that purpose. I have a quick question. It's a light question. Um, uh, I just want to confirm. I'm pretty sure I re-answered it, but VPD Grow Some Bush asks um, whether or not the uh, IR from like a like a camera, you know, uh, like a, with this nighttime protocol, would that be enough IR to set off anything? you know, and the cannabis sensitivity. No, and they've actually tested that. So infrared light above 700 nanometers doesn't affect the plant's photoperiodism. So it, it, it doesn't bother that the plants, it doesn't affect their day-night signal to be getting that higher wavelength light. In fact, if you gave enough 730 nanometer light, you can shorten the dark period because the presence of that um, infrared light actually you can think of it as sort of like puts the plants to sleep faster um it, it allows you to run a shorter dark period now if you're just using the one little diode on your night vision camera that's not going to be enough but you can get ir lights just to to use that and then go to like a 10 hour um dark period to increase the the dli basically um you know the amount of light you can apply to the plants during the, the photo period so anybody that's got a night vision camera that shoots out a beam that you're able to see the plants at night i i say that that's fine for you to use during your flowering period in your grow time as a kind of related side question i've heard of people complaining of herms from like bright red or green lights on humidifiers or other types of things so they cover them up or electrical tape them and i've also heard bugby and i didn't follow up the study but he said he feels certain strains of cannabis are extremely extremely like maybe like poinsettia or some other types of flowers like some of the most low light sensitive during the dark period flowers that he's come across and he even developed a more sensitive sensor for the dark period just to be able to identify if there's any light leaks and things like that so I didn't follow up, but I'm pretty sure kind of the direction that he was heading with that was um, that they might be impacted by that kind of light. I, Ooh, I, I have a question. Green light is safe. I, I definitely don't believe green light is safe. And girls. Oh, perfect. That's yeah. a perfect, that's perfect segue then. Cause I just had an idea. That idea was if somebody, some really crafty person wanted to grow some um, bioluminescent fungi near their, Near their plants, just I guess, just because they wanted to be cool or whatever. Um, a lot of those bioluminescent fungi glow green, not in the presence of orcs, but just because. And I'm curious. <laughs> I know that there's probably no reference for this, but uh, does that sound like? Because you just said green is really not great, and I can understand why. But uh, may, would that be a problem? You think? I mean, they're usually pretty low. Yeah, the what's emissions, the ETF yeah. of coming off yeah. of bioluminescent? <laughs> I I gotta believe that's that's as low sort of light output as as probably we could get. Um, I've never, I've, I don't know the answer to that. I yeah, will also I certainly say don't. though that cannabis plants grown outdoors, and I don't think the science is totally resolved on this certainly seem to be better able to tolerate light contamination during the dark period 
than cannabis plants grown indoors. And I've always kind of thought of that, like if the primary light is the sun, like you don't give a shit about these other lights that might happen to come on, like in the middle of the night, you like, that's not the sun. I, I know that much, but like if your primary light is a grow light, I mean, I don't think it's that though. It's not just sort of what that is. There's some, there's some plant biological sort of signaling going on there though that makes plants more susceptible to light leaks in an indoor grow situation. I think that that just really seems to be the case. So we got another good question from Mr. Mountain Man to Dr. MJ says, would you recommend a high quality um, DIY draining saucer like on his site or some other drainage platform? Yeah, you know, a, a drain tray is fine. What do you, uh, do you, how, what do you do with drainage? You guys all don't water to runoff, do you? So you just water sub runoff and then you never have sort of a drainage issue to have to deal with. Yeah, um, it gets sucked back up. Thank goodness. <laughs> it gets sucked back up. But no, I still deal with it in veg when they're smaller. And I just have one big, I have a two by four tray. So I put all my like one gals in that. And then uh, at, when I, when I'm doing my, like, do you suck that water out or manually empty that tray or if it gets, if I get a lot, I try not to get a lot of runoff, even in the one gals, but if I do, yeah, I just go in there with a shot back. I, get yeah, I started bottom watering, even in my solo cups in veg. Okay. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's actually working spectacularly. So I'm like, whatever. So I would say I like things to be easy. And if you're fertigating, you got you want something that just takes the water away without having to go and manually empty the, the saucers of the tray or whatever. You can definitely get a four by four drain tray that fits in either a four by four or five by five ten and prop it up on something, even if it's just some two by fours or something. So you can run a drain line out of that. If you're just going to be gravity draining. You have to high, prop it up high enough so that you can like fit a bucket under the line or whatever so it can run out. Um, but you can get like a, a condensate pump. Again, that's not sort of the cheapest way to do this. The cheapest way is to build a, you know, 18 inch platform and put your entire tent up on the 18 inch platform and then sort of use those 18 inches of, of gravity space to be able to put a bucket or some sort of catchment underneath. Um, and I have that on my little two by four tent now, but it, yeah, any drain tray will work. I, you know, if you've got a solid canopy, a drain tray is fine. If you've got space between the plants, you don't want, what I don't want is to have like standing water underneath the lights um, or even a lot of wet sort of surfaces underneath the lights because that'll grow mildew and stuff. Um Good point. I also, I've seen these uh, sort of, I think they're like rain gutter kind of things for like, if you make yourself like a little shed or something that's just barely sloped, it could be, you know, anywhere from a few degrees, but um, you put it kind of in the back of the tent, or you could even just have a flat tray and prop it up a little bit, have your water run through all, some people put it on like a metal tray or something that, or like the little pot risers I was talking about. So the water can drain right through. And then once it hits that bottom thing, it drains out to the front and they have like a little gutter that's angled and it all goes down to one little spot so they can either suck it out. Uh, you know, with, I've seen, I forget what they're called, like a transfer pump that like a, a siphon pump used to suck it out. Uh, yeah. It, or condensate pump. They used to pump out the water from air conditioner units or whatever that just you operate on a float switch. So if it gets water or whatever, that it that's the way to go the best, but buy two of them. 
because <laughs> because when case I go one goes down, down, you want one fast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you get I ran, used to that. I ran for a while, and this is my system there um, that I have in the, the article that she's talking about, um, where I, I was in a second story condo. So there's downstairs neighbors, and I had um, my drain bucket basically had like two inches in the bottom of the drain bucket where it could fill up and the pump went on at like an inch and seven eighths um and it would pump it back down to like three quarters of an inch right but like at two inches there were holes where the water could start leaking out so yeah I, that was kind of and it never it, it never did you can actually get better gaskets for that so that the the water won't leak out when it reaches sort of those <laughs> nice, nice um but it takes some dialing in sometimes we'll yeah that. it always does there's i wanted to say there's these like drain away saucers i think is what they're called i saw them berkshire bud came on and did his garden tour on my show last week and he had them and they were like really low profile things. I think they're just like a product. That it sits on top of it and it's got a little side spigot and it basically drains itself to the center and it pushes it out to the side. Yeah. So I have seen that. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're pretty much. cool looking. It is cool. Uh, there's a lot of different types of products like that. If you look around the cannabis space, there's these little niche things. Like uh, I saw instead of like halos, they had ones that went all the way around and it like misted the top of your thing and it kept, it almost acted like a mulch and it sprayed down on top. And uh, there's so many different ways to get water and remove water from your plant and uh automated i think definitely makes it a lot easier on the grower so yeah. if people can figure out how to dial that in and uh make it work I think for them. if you're fertigating if you're growing like i grow uh, you know automating your your drainage is even more important than automating your fertigation i mean if you have to still manually hand water that's one thing but if like you can just water and leave that makes it so much easier, like water and then start training or whatever, as opposed to like going in with a shop back or moving the plants around or taking saucers out or whatever else. So I, I definitely think it's worth investing a little bit in setting up a good drainage system. And uh, if you make it easier on yourself, you're more likely to do it and do it well. So I think the easier we make it, then the better we're going to do it. The other things that you're saying, training, looking, uh, crop scouting, as Matthew would often suggest for us to make sure we're not getting pests or molds and mildews and pulling off those uh, leaves that are getting infected or dying and things like that. Uh, Georgia Grow Guy has a somewhat related question. I think kind of sort of what the doc was just talking about, having it being automated. Um, I'll just read the question and then we'll go from there. Georgia Grow Guy asks, has anyone noticed a difference in flower maturity time between soil and hydro? I am finding my hydro buckets mature 10 to 14 days sooner. I don't know why. Thoughts? I'll take this first and I'll pass it off. But I would say your hydro is probably pretty dialed in and it's finishing about the right time that it should. You're giving it all the nutrients it wants. It's got a good air to water ratio. You're one of those guys who's probably got good temperature in your water, DWC. You're crushing it. Uh, when you do DWC right, it grows well and fast. I would say cannabis is one of the fastest growing plants. And if you keep it healthy and happy, it is impressive how quick it can grow and yield and how big it gets. And uh, DWC is definitely a great example when you've got it all dialed in, which it sounds like you probably do. Soil, on the other hand, I will say from my own experience, I've had mixed results. I've had some good soil. I've had some great soil and I've had amazing soil. And the difference between the good and the amazing is a pretty large amount. And I could say that can make up for you know 10 to 14 days on a harvest. I talked about, I did my stress testing uh, with my Velvet Punch F3 just my couple crops ago. Now I'm doing my fully dialed in grow and my plant was ready. Week eight and a half looked beautiful and it yielded amazing. And the stress test run, things were pushing more like 10, uh, 10 and a half weeks. So it definitely showed me with the same strain, same environment, uh, well, not same environment. I was really torturing it, but when I had it dialed in, 
I finished 10 to 14 days sooner. When I didn't have it dialed in, it it's, was sluggish. And so if you don't make the effort, um, like some people, Brandon Rust, Aaron the Grower, and others test their soil. Um, others like myself and Spartan do a reamendment mix. I, I use Spartans with a few other things. I mix it in and it works pretty darn well if I do it right each time and have my every other element dialed in. It, it tends to do pretty darn well. But when I was growing in smaller pots and uh, didn't use mulch as two examples of things that made my soil not perform as well, uh, I could see the plants finishing later, maybe yellowing out sooner and not performing as well as when I grew in cocoa or in DWC in the past. So with all that said, I'll pass it off to whoever else wants to jump in on that one. I mean, I would say basically the same thing, just just build on what you said. It's, it's really one of the reasons that I always argue that I think hydro or growing in cocoa is more sustainable because we can spend less time in the gardens, we can dial things in and spend less energy on the grow in the long run, um, sort of more reliable in, in those ways. So yeah, if plant's struggling for something, if it's not getting exactly what it needs, it can slow it down in terms of the maturation process. The bigger factor though, that I've found in terms of timeline has been lighting related. So plants that are under lit take lo taking longer than plants that are fully lit. Um, so when you increase the amount of light, growers sort of have to decrease the amount of time um, or they can decrease the amount of time. Uh, you know, I guess it's just not as common to, to flip in sort of whole scale from like an organic to a, a hydro sense and checking time like that. But I'm not surprised that there's going to be a similar relationship. I've also seen kind of what you just talked about with uh, the amount of light in nature. Um, I walk, I take hikes a lot and there's rosemary that grows all over San Diego and rosemary is a flowering plant it vegetatively is a little green bush but then when it flowers you get these blue kind of clusters of uh, flowers that come off of it and within the same neighborhood i know it's the same uh, hoa that's taking care of this i see the same gardeners tending to all the plants and some of them are flowering substantially sooner and some of them are not flowering at all and it's based on where they're at the amount of sunlight their temperature even like the dew on them in the morning like because there's a house right next to one and like it gets shaded a different time of day and then the sun comes around in a different area. It's really amazing how much that kind of stuff uh, yeah. matters. And well, and if you harvested it and used it to make your potatoes every morning, I think you'd be able to start to recognize differences between sort of different rosemaries grown in different places or harvested at different times or whatever, right? I really notice the like KNF people who say like get it in the morning when there's dew because I'll start my hike and I always pet the individual's dog and I get to their house and my hands stink like you know, like a dog, you know, most dogs don't have the greatest pleasant smell compared to like fresh rosemary. When you pull rosemary and then rub it between your hands, you get this really nice, piney, delicious, amazing smell. And it actually completely gets rid of the dog smell. That's one of the reasons I do it. But when we finish the hike and I get back there, if I pull some dry rosemary off, it still smells good, but it's not as good as when there's that moisture there in the morning. Uh, and, you know, it just had the whole night to kind of rejuvenate and do whatever it's thing. And uh, that has been demonstrated to me like firsthand a couple of times. So it's cool to you know, see it demonstrated in the science and, and people that recommend it, the people that kind of uh, natural craft, whatever, and make their own nutrients and things like that. Uh, I can see why they've learned those lessons and applied them. Yeah. I have Speaking a friend of, who, uh, she grows lavender um, professionally, like, you know, lavender fields, like they harvest it for um, various things, actually. And uh, yeah, she often talks about how, you know, when she harvests sections or she has people who harvest sections, you know, they, they try to do it early, early for exactly that reason. And then they have a whole 
system, you know, set up so that they can preserve the lavender before it gets processed. So that's definitely, that's definitely a thing. It's really cool to see. I've even seen like in wine, sometimes they'll try and get out there early. And I've even seen, sometimes they put up um, little like shades over top of it, maybe to make it easier to work, but also to extend the darkness period while they're harvesting. Cause there's a lot of stuff to go through that. I'm pretty sure most of it's hand harvested. So uh, a lot of work that goes in and in those hot mornings, it gets humid and stuff, but they'll go out there. If you wake up at, at two o'clock in the morning and look out at the wine vineyards during harvest season, you'll see them all out there with their lanterns on with headlamps doing their harvesting. Um, that's just a real thing they start at like 2 a.m and they'll go until like sunrise yeah and that's when you want to harvest the the prime grapes it makes there's a lot of crossover so i mean it's it's good to see that we're kind of acknowledging and recognizing the same thing whether it's yep. for our cannabis or for natural crafting to make yeah, our nutrients i've said that for cannabis like i'd always want to harvest at the end of a dark period but I, there's no reason necessarily to extend that dark period to make it sort of longer than it otherwise would be but you know, in terms of harvesting after the lights have been on or after the darkness, I'd, I'd always rather harvest up to the darkness. I'm with that as well. And APM followed up with a question that's kind of on the natural front. They say, would top dressing worm castings in the last two weeks of flour be a bad idea? Um, I think in that kind of setting, it's probably not going to make a, a crazy amount of difference. I tend to not do that because I know that one of the things that they do carries a decent amount of nitrogen and throwing that nitrogen in there at the end of the grow is something that I kind of wouldn't uh, do as a regular practice. Um, I would maybe use like an amino, like an amino N plus, something that's going to be kind of quickly available and then also not stick around as long if I wanted something like that to boost. But when your last two weeks in the grow, I, I'm kind of just letting it, I, maybe going back to the grape example, but if there's a little bit less nutrient than it should have, I'm not going to be losing sleep over it. I'll let it starve out a little bit those last few weeks. It's done a lot of its development. I might lose some yield, but uh, I'm not going to you know, break my back trying to squeeze something in there in an organic setting. If I was in a synthetic setting, I would want to address it and see what's going on. Is my EC off? Is my NER not good? Am I using a, a nutrient that's not supplying everything that it would have needed? Because I could correct it within hours, seconds, minutes. Um, but on the organics timeline, at that point, I would just kind of give it water, let it do its thing through the end of the harvest. But I'm curious what the rest of the panel's thoughts are on that question. I would yeah, I would. Go ahead, go ahead Tom. All right, I'll go. I wouldn't add nothing after week six. I don't care what's happening, how effed up it looks. I, I just said no, because I, I, at one point I added, I just, you know, I'll just throw some more roots organic on top of it, on the container. You know, it's not like really rich nutrient, but it'll help. But I swear it tasted like, the, the buds tasted like roots organic soil, dude. And it really did. And that's why I will never add anything after like week six. And I was going to say on that flowering question, I've noticed a difference where I put the same cut one was way healthier than the other in flower at the same time and it seemed like the delay was in that in the bolt or more or less or it was a delay overall but it definitely was noticeable the one plant had had uh you know bunny tail rabbits on it and the other one was just starting to get going with uh with the hairs so i i think yeah there's definitely on the health of the plant and how quick it may finish flowering there's probably a lot of um uh, the differences that could be seen, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it could just be one plant is healthier than the other, regardless of the medium. Like you could have two plants in cocoa and one's going to finish a lot sooner uh, just because it was healthier in veg and it had better root mass. Like Doc said last week, I think um, if you excavate the roots, the ones that have 
conversely, like the weakest roots are usually the dinkiest little plant and something must have went wrong. And even if you grew a monocrop of all that same strain, uh, sometimes you'll notice those subtle differences. And maybe it was something in the cultivation. Maybe that pot was dirty from you reused it the last grow and there was something growing in there. Or maybe it had like a just really hard pocket that it couldn't grow into versus the other ones had a nice fluffy, whatever. It wasn't packed down as much as the rest. There's so many little subtle factors that can cause something like that. So it is, uh, it's interesting to discuss though, because um, I think the more we know, the more we can avoid having those struggles pop up as much. Yeah, I was, I'm in pretty much agreement with everybody, but um, when I get a question like this to my, you know, to myself, maybe as a DM or as a, an email, I usually have a question back is why are you thinking of adding earthworm castings? Well, for what reason? And a lot of times you'll be like, well, my plants are great, but I'm just thinking this will, you know, bring more terps, whatever. I'm like, if your plants are great, what, why would you be adding anything? <laughs> you know, because it's usually somebody just wanting to be, you know, lo over love their plant, especially when you're almost done. That's that's gen generally the case. They think there's something more that they can push at the end. And it's usually at that point pretty late in the game for it to make a huge, a lot of difference. And you're just wasting money. Um, the only benefit I can see of doing something like that in the end, because earthworm castings are pretty low. When it comes to MPK, it's usually if it has anything, it might have a little bit of nitrogen. It might be a one zero zero or a two zero zero if it's crazy high in nitrogen. Um, but if you're going to be reusing your soil and um, you're worried about like that transition phase between harvest and and going to maybe you don't have a long period before you have to replant into it or something, and you're trying to get a jump on, I don't know, trying to get a jump on recharging that soil or something. Um, then maybe that would be a little bit beneficial to the next run. It's not going to, I don't see it being super beneficial to the run you're on now um, with only a couple of weeks to go before you're going to cut it down. I think we definitely addressed that. Well, um, I just wanted to ask Noah, did you have any thoughts on that DWC versus soil question before I go on to the next one or this last one that we just talked about? No, that last question. I mean, you know, the, I always like to give my plants water only for the last, you know, 10 days, two weeks anyway. So um, pretty much Spartan and Tau covered it. That's the way I would feel about it too. Your plants are what they are. And um, like I said, I like, I like giving it water only. I think it affects the taste positive and that's just my own personal experience. So. All right. We got another good question from anything grows who says, is there a best time to water in relation to the light cycle? Does it vary with hand watering automatic setups that can be programmed? So I'd pass that to Doc because I think you probably have the most control over when you're applying water to the grow. Yeah, so it depends on how frequently you're watering, I suppose, on one level. But in terms of like picking a time during the day, I always water at lights on, like pretty much regardless of everything else. There's a watering event that happens at lights on. I mean, that's true with like my yard too or whatever, you know, plants outside, you water right before the the, the day starts. Um and that kind of gives the the plants the the water that they'll use during that day. Now, under sort of a high frequency fertigation, it, you may water several times during that day. Um, this has come up recently in in conversations that I, I have scheduled watering events during the dark period of of the flowering, certainly under higher frequencies, um, four times, five times a day under 12, 12 lighting, one of those events happens when the lights are off. So growers sometimes ask is like, if it's allowed to water when the lights are off, it certainly it is allowed. Um, plants use water the whole day. So 24 hours a day, plants are transpiring unless they sort of go into shutdown, which you don't want. They use water about twice as fast when the lights are on. 
not exactly, and there's other things that affect this, but it's close enough that I think for estimations, you can use that. Um, about twice as fast when the lights are on as when they're off, um, if you are sort of going to a higher frequency. But I have a feeling this might be a lower frequency just once a day or once every other day or whatever. And it doesn't make a tremendous difference, but I do think it's slightly better to water at lights on. I think that's pretty well answered and uh, addresses probably a lot of people's concerns. Does anybody else have any thoughts on that one? From a hand watering point of view, which is something I've always done, just it's a, a, a thing I do to be in my room with my plants, be more familiar with each plant. I do a, a scout. Uh, I do everything when I'm in there. But I'll tell you one thing that is annoying is when I have all my clones and they and you go in there and half of them need water and half of them don't. So now it's like, Oh boy. And it's the same thing. Like I'll water all my plants, my flower, a certain amount, maybe a little bit less for a bigger pot, maybe a little bit more for this one. And then come back in and only one doesn't need water. And it's like, Oh shoot. Isn't it? So that could be an annoying part of a hand warning. I I'm a big advocate of not overwatering when you're, you're hand watering and you're in a peat based soil, but you know, that's just where I look at it from there. I'm a huge proponent of that. I think overwatering is a really big struggle for a lot of people in peat. Um, that's one of the big major benefits of cocoa is you can keep it pretty much well saturated the entire time. Chad Westport intelligently points out, assuming the temperature always stays the same through. Uh, yeah, like that's one of the factors that Doc, I think, was referring to that can change throughout. Like if, if you have a huge temperature swing from day to night or night to day, that will affect how much the plant is going to use and take up water during different times. So good point there, Chad. Uh, big yeah, and humidity swing too. I was just going to say that. Difference. Yeah, the environment. The, those are the how you're controlling major. the environment makes a difference. If you're using a ventilated versus a, a sealed space with dehumidification, if you're using dehumidification or reheat, all of these things are going to sort of make a difference on transpiration. Absolutely. But the, the more important point that I wanted to make is plants still are transpiring even at night. Um, so they're still using water at night, but they use it slower at night than they do during the day. Right. And then it's interesting because when they're transpiring at night, there's not that light to basically help evaporate off some of the humidity. So we have to have different considerations for dehumidification or reheat, which has kind of been new into my purview. There's a guy, Cannabis Mechanical, out in Oklahoma, who's advocating a lot for reheat as opposed to... He seems like a good guy from what I understand. Yeah, I mean, we hired him for one of the big commercial projects that I worked on. Um, we hired him as a, as another consultant to come in and helped us design that whole um, HVAC system. So, um, yeah, I'm very familiar now. I, I got to program the whole um, grow control for reheat and five flower rooms and mom room and all that. I'd prefer um, that to buying like what I feel are kind of cannabis branded dehumidification like whether it's andin or quest or some of the other it's better it, it really is and they make good dehumidifiers ideal. they make good dehumidifiers i'm not going to shit on their de they, they, in my experience i think they make good enough quality but versus reheat which has been around and people that are in the hvac field know about this it's it's something that's used in all large-scale dehumidification essentially or, or basically uh, climate control for you know warehouses and things like that of larger scale indoor um, pools places that have high humidity indoor pools is a big one and that's a really hard one to to control the hvac situation and especially like in like a big stadium indoor pool for competitions and stuff to to have the right relative humidity and temperature in there it's almost impossible to do that with a heat-based dehumidifier so yeah you use air conditioners the primary work of the air conditioner is uh, uh, removing moisture from the air. And as a side effect, the air gets too cold. So you you reheat it. And, and that's why it's called reheat. You have basically both the 
the air conditioner and the heater come on when the humidity gets too high. It's brilliant. And I think especially at large scale, that should definitely be implemented in a pool is a perfect example. If you can handle pools with that type of technology, Big a grow is like the same environment. You have tons of humidity. Yeah. Big grows, man. Every grow that runs a dehumidifier faces a, a humidity spike. Spartan can attest to this, I'm sure. When the lights go off, the humidity spikes because it's not so much even that the lights are going off. It's that the air conditioners aren't working as hard anymore because there's not heat. And so those air conditioners were doing a lot of the dehumidification work during the day. And once they're no longer being turned on because it's not hot in that room anymore, then the RH starts going up. And that's when your dehumidifiers kick on to full blast and it takes them hours to catch up. And so you always get this spike and you can see it in your sort of daily chart where the lights go off yeah. and the RH goes up and then it comes back down slowly over the next few hours. If you run a reheat system, that doesn't happen. The AC state is the what's doing the dehumidifying. When the lights go off, the AC stays on and the heater turns on. Um, so it just replaces the heat from the lights with the heat from the heater. And you power right through that and you never get that sort of um, RH spike that happens in every other grow when the lights go off. So for that reason, it's it's definitely a superior thing. It's also a hell of a lot cheaper. Way cheaper. Uh, I've seen the graphs. Say. You can see it. Like, say, that's it. Boom, that's boom. the big one that nobody talks about. But the hidden, the in some grows, the the electricity to run the damn dehumidifiers is higher bill than, than the, light. the lights. With yeah, the that's why I always yeah, argue bothering, the whole... Like it's not efficient to run both the air conditioner and the heater at the same time. We're not doing this for temperature. We're doing well. We sort of are, but we're doing this for dehumidification. Dehumidification is hard. It's energy intensive work. Um, so, and that's why that yield per light is kind of a, a when you're just looking at the, only the watts of the grow light and then not considering the fans the dehumidifiers the air conditioning there's a whole lot to consider like the power use is uh, definitely a huge thing so and this uh, is why you would never choose to grow like that unless you kind of had to because it's like for home growers right why are you going to have to buy like a dedicated air conditioner and, and running reheat or a dedicated dehumidifier and all this sort of added equipment that you'd have to do to properly seal your space yeah, I, I'm definitely on the home growth setting, more of a recirculate, uh, move the air around and make it work. But uh, we have another great question from AWD STI82, who says, at Cheap Home Grow, how often can you foliar feed your plants? Personally, I might be a little bit on the extreme on this, but I think you could do it every single day if you wanted to or needed to. Uh, one example I'll give is I came back from vacation. I was growing in cocoa. My plant sitter um, didn't read my note. They just gave the plant water, water, water for every watering in cocoa, which essentially flushed it. So I went from really green, healthy plants when I left. I came back to yellow, pretty much dying plants when I got home. Uh, but I fed them proper, you know, EC nutrient feed when I got home. But on top of that, I took a foliar and I foliared them that night. And then I woke up the next morning, I foliared them and I foliared them the next like day after that. And within three, four days, they were actually back to darn near as healthy as they were before I left. Like almost all the way re-greened. Even the leaves that were yellow, it was amazing how much they came back to life. I have this on my Instagram. I should probably pull it up, but um, it's amazing how much you can rescue the plant. I do believe that foliar, if needed for something like that, um, as an SOP, I wouldn't ever go that heavy. It's just not uh, cost privately. It's, it's effort, the labor, the time, uh, and all the other things like the environment being messed with kind of, you're getting a lot of humidity, especially for me in like a small growth space, you're having to cover up your lights, which I advocate you do because I've seen people out there crapping on lights that I've used for a long time because they sprayed unprotected diodes and they go and blame their manufacturer, even though they're now sponsored by a new girl light manufacturer that has covered diodes, which beside the point, but 
yeah, there's lots of things to consider and uh, it should be noted that foliar feeding has some repercussions and you have to account for those, uh, both the environment and covering up your lights, which are effort and time. So Derek, do you remember what your foliar feed was? I use heavy 16s foliar. I loved, loved it. Nice. Worked really well. Yeah, covering up your lights or, or removing them from the grow space, if if that's possible. Or if you can move your plant into like a shower area or something and spray yeah, a separate area, but it becomes so much when effort. You're happy to be a home grower because we were just facing this on one of the commercial grows I was doing, but they're talking about taking out 33 lights from a grow room or covering them up or like how to how to deal with that. It's a totally different ball of wax when there's just one of them. So when people are like, oh, I don't spray it on the lights and I can move the lights up, but like if you put toilet paper on that light, water especially with like foggers and misters it will get up there and it'll get up on unprotected diodes even protected diodes i personally don't love getting stuff on top of them you want to keep them as clean and dry as possible to prevent any sort of loss of efficiency or damage to the light it's just not good practice i think to uh yeah even if they're protected like you're saying jack that residue anything that gets on there and dries is then going to be absorbing light and converting it to heat right on sort of the lens or right on the the protective cover or whatever the grow light um it's best to to yeah cover them remove them i agree anybody else have thoughts on how often you can foliar and uh what maybe your foliar kind of ideologies would be well uh this isn't really related to this is a tangentially related thing but um you know as soon as i learned about this fact i i think that everyone should know it i've said it before um like when i did my botrytis presentation but you know, um, some of these products that people are applying to their foliage, uh, it's like a foliar feed and that kind of a thing. I'm not going to say that you shouldn't do it or if there's no appropriate time to do it or anything like that. But um, especially for somebody who's really into um, sort of cultivating that like phylosphere biota on the surface of the leaves, on the stems, also in the soil, of course, that's the more in vogue place to talk about. But you know, it happens there's microbes all across the surface of the plant too, right? And some of those microbes, some of those spores of various things, um, botrytis is one of these examples where uh, as it's germinating, if you hit it with like amino acids or sugars or things, you know, nutrients, minerals, that kind of stuff, it's meant for the plant. Um, and maybe this seems obvious now that I kind of spelled it out, but they pathogens but also beneficials can also benefit from this as well and uh so that's kind of a fun fact <laughs> so maybe throw some beneficials like some lactobacillus in with your foliage. yeah you have something to help uh act as an ipm right behind that yeah challenge it yeah i love that idea exactly like um you know uh i'm not saying that you know i i've kind of because i'm a really pedantic person um you know when people say like biodiversity is key that's true to a degree certainly um you of course don't want like pathogens and things right that goes exactly more diverse matthew <laughs> it's more diverse diversity is more at diverse. the expense of your health of your grow <laughs> yeah exactly but Let's at the same all time of the pathogens in there right i am no, equal opportunist for my pathogens yeah. And my microbes. Yeah, um, my but microbes. Rowdy 420 asked a related question kind of the, to the foliar. And I'm sorry to jump in front of some of the other questions that have been asked a while ago, but it's so related that I wanted to pass it on to Doc because I, I haven't really thought about it myself. I don't use a humidifier personally. But they say, would the calcium residue from using tap water 
in a humidifier settle on the light or the diodes? Yeah, it it actually could. Um, The other thing is it's going to settle on the, what do they call the thing in the humidifier, the ultrasonic sort of thing. It's going to settle on that. It's really worth it to to use purified water for humidifiers because you don't have to clean them nearly as often. Um, They won't sort of gunk up. There's a word for that that thing, metal little disc that basically- Condenser. Is it a condenser? Maybe, but uh, I clean my gr- grow light every grow, like just because even the other crap, dust and things- The grow light, yeah, no, I'm talking about the humidifier itself. But yeah, I think that if you're vaporizing that, that calcium water and, and there's mist or any kind of water vapor that, that settles onto the, the underside of your lens, it could be the same thing as a foliar application where you get some residue there that that- converts light into heat that was definitely a well thought question i'm glad that they asked that because i think a lot of us might not consider that and um do you have a recommendation for how you how you would clean diodes off because i have cobs and they recommended i think you use like a little bit of alcohol and and wipe it down and between grows i'm fine with doing that it's not a whole lot of maintenance but if i had a 1000 diode uh, quantum board it'd be a little bit different is it okay to go over that with like a a light alcohol wipe or is there another way to go about cleaning that type of light um yeah you know if you get stuff that's like are you thinking about terpene residue is that alcohol to try to dissolve terpenes perhaps or even just like general like picking up dust cleaning it if if, if there's that calcium from your humidifier or if you did have foliar if you didn't perhaps cover some people are gonna uh, not use the distilled water in their thing so for those people out there that are going to want to wipe it down like i have cats and i know just like their hair creates like dust and whatever it gets up in the air and sometimes will stick on things and i know that's sometimes on there and when we I use wipe it off. bleach oftentimes to do this basic sort of sanitiz- sanitation cleaning you know what i mean and and oftentimes we'll wipe down led bars with, with just a, a a damp rag like that um uh, yeah, I don't think there's a problem with using dilute alcohol, iso alcohol for that, but um, and I do think it might be better in in terms of because there are like you know little trichomes or whatever stuff gets blown around. We're growing in like windy spaces with sticky plants, and you, you will get some trichome residue up on the underside of your lights. So. Um, that's an interesting question. You know, I don't think it really ever builds up to the point where it sort of accumulates gunk or something like that either. Um, but you can clean, wipe them off. Yeah. is is a good practice. Yeah. I think it's just, uh, don't want to lose that 1% as they're kind of getting dimmer throughout their lifetime anyway. Uh, just trying to maintain it as a good practice. I I think cleaning down the tent generally, like everything else, the bottom tray, the walls and exactly. And all just good habits being diluted bleach um i think the only advantage of the alcohol is just if i've got that around yeah i think the only advantage of that alcohol is that it dries super fast right it almost evaporates right off yeah so i use bleach for the walls of the tent and for the sides of the tent and everything else and then i follow it up with like a soapy water for the diodes you don't want your diodes to be wet you don't want to use any kind of um like harsh solvent on them um I don't think alcohol is going to be a problem. And and the fact that it's, it is going to dry off like on contact is probably going to help. Lone Star Larf has a good question. We were talking a little bit about DLI earlier when we were talking about the 730 and being able to run like a 13 or 14 hour on 10 hour dark or 11 hour dark. Um, they said, does anyone know anything about DLI and terpene expression? I've heard reducing light can improve quality, but not quantity. 
Well, I'd be curious. I don't think DLI is probably the right thing for this conversation specifically. I think we'd be just be talking about PPFD. Um, or, or maybe if you just think that you're turning down the PPFD for a certain time of the, the grow. The other way that we would reduce DLI would be shortening the grow yeah. cycle or shortening the lights on time. So I imagine that Lone Star Leaf is thinking about staying 12 hours of light and like turning down the dimmer a little bit, which has the equivalent of reducing the DLI. I was thinking um, the opposite just because of the, um, I think it was DJ Short who always who always pushes for that like the hawaiian tech lower light cycle to get yeah, he's like he calls it the hawaiian style or like island style because hawaii sometimes has an 11 13 uh most of their year i think they're under they're or right around 12 12 and some areas near the equator are also like that um but i think it was when i noticed the most benefit from that was when i was running way too much light when i had a cmh that was made for a three by three area which is nine square feet in a five square foot area yeah. so when i went from 12 12 to 11 13 my plants weren't getting like lambasted with light for 12 full hours they're getting a little bit more appropriate 11 on and then right. the 13 off was like oh man it's really nice to sleep and not be getting just drilled by way too much light and uh so i, I noticed much better expression there and under led i've tried 11 13 versus 12 12 i'm kind of at like an 11 and a half on 12 and a half off right now just because i do uh half an hour before and half hour after kind of sunrise sunset with my 730 uh, nanometer red and my 660 nanometer red and 440 nanometer blue because i diy'd my light to have like a few extra boosts it's like a lower kind of a gradual on i wouldn't see i wouldn't leave the 440 440's blue yeah i know it's it's only like a two or three watts but compared to 30 watts of red and it's uh but that's not like uv that's just blue yeah it's just blue it's straight up blue it's within par yes so it's yeah. going to prevent the plants from sleeping well yeah that is uh, something to consider. Maybe I should uh, rearrange the wiring, but I'll, I'll say this. Uh, the 660s, frankly, are too. The 660s are within par and will prevent the plant from sleeping. It's only the 730s, and it has to be run independently of any other light sources like that if you really want to get the the benefit of, of shutting down the plants faster. I um, honestly added it more for the Emerson effect because I run it through the entire cycle. Right. Uh, the 660, and because the cob that I had 3500, it, it slopes down a little bit in the red. So it was boosting up a little bit more in those reds. And I like the blue because I read some article <laughs> a while ago in some cannabis magazine talking about there was a study that found 440 nanometer blue, like increased terpene and anthocyanin production. So I, uh, you know, ran with that and wanted to throw a little bit of a spike, but there's already 440 nanometer blue within 3500. It's just a, it's it's a very compared to Those the two hundred and other twenty watts. Diodes. The the four they're usually about four fifty nanometers, but there are four forties and four sixties too. But they're they're the most common diode. They're the base of all of the the white diodes are basically four fifty nanometer semiconductors. So, um, yeah. I, I'll I like, say I'm much happier with a appropriately sized LED for my tent than I am than the, than the with CMH. a CMH that's over cranking the entire time and the plants have been much happier i've been much happier and getting similar or even better yields and uh leds really i've noticed i used to be an hps grower and a metal halide grower i did checkered i did full hps uh, i went to cmh loved it i loved all of it and led has been fantastic for a lot of reasons but uh, not to get turn this into that because we have another question from oki grower that actually is about leds uh could you ask dr mj coco if he has or could do a par test in a four by four or five by five using four small lights and what would be the best spacing to get the lights to have the best performance? 
So are we talking about four identical lights? I think that, or even just like, I think he has a hodgepodge in his grow. If I remember, he's come on many times in the past for, I said I was going to so put the panel it's in. It's going to matter. Like, I can't test the hodgepodge, right? Like, because every every sort of different light that you put into that hodgepodge is going to make a difference. But we, I, I have tested multiple lights in an array, and I can talk a little bit about sort of from a theoretical side, what you could expect in terms of spacing. So... Growers often ask me the spacing question. Let's assume that you have four equal lights in your four by four tent, um, and you're going to have sort of a gap between the light and the wall, a gap between the lights, and then another gap between the light and the wall, right? Um, if you have two, and then that'll be the same way the other dimension to have like four lights over the four by four. So if you're just looking at it sideways, you're with me, right? So yeah, I remember you did, there was think, a Mars hydro test. If if somebody wants to go and watch it, you did two of the bar style yeah. side by side, and you figured out how much more efficient it was running two of them versus yep. one of them. And, and it is actually worth watching just from a. I, I like that kind of like the physics of how it all works and and seeing it on the actual par maps done well in an unbiased setting. I, I really thought that it was informative for me. So everybody Excellent. go check out Doc's page for that and many other reasons. But I, I would also I think it'd be cool, even though we're talking about it on the show, if you got a light manufacturer that like somebody who starts off with a hundred water to get into their veg or whatever, and then they expand it out and maybe get at another hundred water and another hundred water. And so you get up to 400 or maybe it's 150, 300, 450, right. 600, which would get you more to like a four by four. Um, yep. I think that would be kind of a interesting test. For it's people a challenge there, to set happen. up those tests um, because Hey, you, you want to get the, all the lights at exactly the right spacing and exactly the right height above the, the sensors and everything. And if I want to hit like a target, like a thousand micromoles, then I got to adjust all four lights. But anyways, just in terms of, of the spacing, growers often think you'd want to leave twice as much space in between the lights as you do uh, on each edge against the wall, but it's actually better to cheat your lights towards the walls. So cheat your lights towards the uh, towards all four corners, basically, and away from the middle if you're running four lights in a test like that, um, it, because all four lights are still going to throw light into the middle of that tent, and it, it's still going to have really good density of light in the middle of the tent. It's going to be able to get better density of light out towards the, the corners. In the corners of the tent, the plants there are primarily getting their light only from that fixture that's sort of in that corner. So moving that light closer to it's going to even out the distribution. And this is what LED bar fixtures have done that are designed for single fixture grows. They offset the, the spacing between the bars so that the bars are closer together on the ends. And along the bars, they put more diodes at the ends of the bars and fewer diodes in the middle. So you can sort of crib off of that with the four light setup that's a good point and yeah i definitely agree putting them towards the corners because the overspill being towards the center is going to be more than adequate and being right next to a reflective wall in the area that the plants most often suffer from not getting enough light um is in those corners so you're boosting up the area that they'd be the weakest and that's sort of the benefit if you wanted to grab multiple lights if you don't have a single light that covers your area adequately you're going to want to push them out to the corners and cover the areas that would be getting and essentially the least I mean, it, it's perfectly valid. I think it's a little bit easier to run a four by four tent with only one light in it if it's a big enough light. But, you know, you can get a very good par map out of running four lights like that. And like you were talking about, if you're just looking at like the two by two par maps and thinking about what this, what four of them can do in a four by four, it's actually going to be better than that because 
the the light that bounces off the wall you lose something but the lights that just shared in the middle between fixtures you don't lose anything so exactly. that spillover light is more efficient than the reflected light spartan grown i know we went a little bit over your time i want to give you a chance to give your final thoughts and shout outs before you get run in thanks thanks jack thanks panel i thought this was a great show man i love uh i love these shows where we can uh go back and forth and everybody get their ideas out there and then it's cool to see chat chime in too, man. I love it. I love it. Uh, the community aspect of it. So uh, I'm about ready to go over to the Michigan Bros Grow Show. Uh, I'll see you all over there. Um, man, my, my I've just been sitting here smoking too much. My mind's not working. <laughs> but uh, just much love to everyone out there. Keep growing. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Grow or love, Spartan. <laughs> much grow or love, buddy. Always great having you in. Noah the Groa, as he said earlier, showing off his grow as always, repping, looking amazing over there. And uh, Noah, show us, or you could unmute, you turned it to the side and everything ahead of time. It's looking killer oh. over there. What are we looking at? So I, I just was, okay, I'm always trying to learn new stuff, but I'm on day 20 right here. This is day 20, and I, I'm not taking off all these leaves. I'm not, so I'm not sitting here and I'm not trying to be confrontational with anybody. I'm just giving my own personal experience. I would hope that uh, people would think that my experience is valid. I think everyone is going. I, I do. No, I no, think you've got great plans, man. And I've always, I've, I've never thought that I'm your plants looked going. overly stripped either. Here, now, here's a question. See this right here? These little, these little things right here. I'm always, even myself, after doing this for almost 13 years, these little things down here. Now, they're not getting any light. And these little things are just going to be wispy. So do I there's too many of them though yeah, Noah. exactly exactly uh, so oh i trim branches all over sure. the place right i trim right. tons of branches i trim yeah. most of the branches that the plant's gonna would want to produce i never let them produce those branches in the first place but it's not getting light onto those buds that's going to help them Noah. it's having the right ratio between how much light the plant is harvesting and how many budding sites there are so if oh, you leave a lot of budding sites in the under canopy, then they won't all grow because there's too many of them and not enough energy to support them. But if you trim most of them and only left a couple, even though they're fully shaded out, they're going to grow out to be dense, hard nuggets, just like they would at the top of the canopy. And, and so, you can absolutely try that in your grow. Trim all of them except for a couple and see what happens to the quality of those buds, in, independent from sort of the number of them. Um, and I've done that. And I've done that. And it's, it's always finding that fine line between each stream. Like this one is a brand new plant. I've never grown this plant before. This is uh, Rainbow Belts too. So this plant kind of stopped is just this little section right here. Right. This right here, this, and I, this right here is one GG4 that I took and I smashed up into it so that all the bud sites would be exposed. Right. So, you know what I mean? And, You're and not going to so harvest many... anymore by exposing the bud sites. It's about how much photons the plant overall is harvesting and its leaves. Having more, having the plant open more has more canopy surface area to harvest photons. I and think then the plant saying, is going to take that yeah. photon energy and grow buds. 
and it will prioritize the buds that are higher on the plant over the buds that are lower on the plant. So if there's not enough energy to support all of the buds, then only the ones that are higher on the plant will fully reach maturity and sort of become the, the quality cannabis that we're looking for. But if there's the right number of buds sort of all throughout the plant relative to the amount of light that that plant can harvest, then you'll get nice, good quality buds throughout the plant. I think he was so, kind of when he was saying bud sites, he was talking about like there's the leaves supporting those bud sites and getting all of those up there as well and yeah. kind of getting the majority of his canopy as well as yeah. the buds and the leaves up there. Yeah, spreading out and creating a big umbrella to sort of collect all those photons um, right at that target level where the density is ideal is absolutely the, the name of the game and you're doing a good job of it in that space now. So another thing is that I normally am a big proponent of trimming the skirt up really high. As you can see, I showed you some of that larger stuff down there. I, I kind of backed myself into a corner there. I, I normally have a way higher skirt than, uh, you know, I don't even know, 16 inches here. I would normally almost, because my plants are pretty tall. You know, I put them in here when they're really tall. And I, and I do trim off that skirt to eliminate the energy going to the bottom. So, uh, and I, and I'm the energy, yeah, stuff. you don't want to grow buds down there. So I trim no. off the, the, yeah. the grow it, tips before they ever have a chance to become branches. I'll leave the leaves, but once the leaves are shaded out, then they're not doing much in terms of photosynthesis. And so I'll, I'll trim them for climate reasons at that point. Yeah. Under um, 200 PPFD, they start to just dump humidity essentially. Yeah. They are a reserve for some new, some mobile nutrients. So you know, if your climate's all right, you don't need to cut them even then. You can leave them there and the plant will reallocate some of the, the mobile nutrients from those plants as they senesce. Um, but I eat that part. I just literally rip it off towards the end. Like, I, I know it's not going to develop some of those wispier ones or like you're saying, I'll pull them off early in the flower stage where I'm like, I know this one based on where it's at is not going to get enough room right. in the tent. Uh, not even really light. It's just like there's other branches that are significantly stronger healthier and uh, in better position that are going to fill up the rest of the room that i had so i will take off branches as well to manage yeah. the overall number because i think each plant can really only hold so many colas you're not gonna have a thousand colas on a plant that are all developed you might have 100 or 50 or 30 or 16 that are all going to be developed but at a certain point it's not gonna be able to support so much load um so yeah you guys can grow the same great... amount of cannabis i believe and if you're growing larf in the bottom of the canopy, you're growing less dense nuggets because if you have like five larf nuggets and, and you had trimmed them off earlier and only left one, you'd have one nice dense nugget instead of the five larf nuggets. So I, I definitely think hitting that ratio where you're, you're leaving buds in the under canopy, but they're not, I mean, few enough that they're all able to mature. Question is quick for any of us, uh, but it's directed at Doc first. Um, what is the last day you would leaf strip or even remove any leaf in flower? I've really tried to do that stuff during the, the bolt. So day 16, 17, 18, um, it, some plants will bolt longer. And if they're still sort of vigorously growing and creating new problems, but that's also, I just want to point out the time when the plants are creating problems that you need to sort of address, right? They're growing like two inches a day or whatever, and, and running into each other, running into the light, running into the wall, crowding each other out, whatever. So while they're still doing that vegetative growth, and then I try not to do a big strip. I'll, I'll cut leaves selectively every day, kind of go in there during that time and rearrange things or whatever. 
Um, and the as same. they slow down, I try to slow down to to cut the leaves off. And uh, for Matthew, it says at Xanthanol, is there an IPM concern with pulling leaves late in flower? Uh, parentheses week six week six plus. Yeah, I did answer this in the chat as well, but I was just going to say that you could transmit pathogens potentially uh, if you're using tools or your hands, I guess, um, and not like cleaning them, you know, through, uh, you know, when you're when you're taking when you're cutting, you're stripping. However, your technique is oriented. But to be honest, besides the example of like HLV I gave, hop latent viroid, I really and even then, you know, I don't know how quickly you're going to start to have problems. Uh, it's obviously not something that you would want or should take uh, lightly. But like a lot of times I feel like people don't actually get this problem or not HLV, but like just like this pathogen transmission problem in a lot of cases. So just be sure to be clean with your tools. And I think you should be fine. That's a good point. And I was going to say not in for uh, cultivation purposes, but just for ease of harvest, like on the actual day of harvest, I'll remove a lot of the big leaf before I actually chop the plant down. And that's like on the day of chop or, that's you know, fine. the, you know, the 12 hours leading up. Yeah. Um, but it's not because any other, you know, yield or, or plant shape or anything like that. It's, it's purely just a plant management practice for getting the plant down in a manageable way. So it's um, not, I don't think it'd even be related to this. I just wanted to kind of tack that on because it's in that week six plus range. And I don't want people to think, Oh, I can't take it off until I've literally chopped the plant down. Cause in that, you know, I'd say even 24 hours up to the chop, I'd be okay with removing leaves uh, on that plant before I cut it down. So it's actually easier to do it that because the plant still has turgor pressure and it's kind of like sticking up and it, it's, yeah, there's some advantage. I totally agree with that, Jack. You can pre-trim your plant on its last day of life. And then a quick one before we do our sign outs, Dog Doctor says, when do you guys stop CalMag when growing organic pellets or soil i've been stopping in week three or four and flower what is your opinion on this um you know with a slow it depends on how slow release those pellets are i would look into that particular product uh if it's something that's gonna be there for two or three weeks i think that's fine uh day 21 is usually i think a lot of the time that people will cut off with organic uh fertilizers but some people even cut right when they flip uh like i know a lot of the super soil people would just uh, go basically water only the entire time in soil once they flipped and there's lots of different approaches but um, I'm curious if anybody else wants to jump in on that one I was drifting off reading chat sorry it sounded okay. like you had it well covered uh, Tao or Noah do you have thoughts on this one well you don't want to cut it off too early and uh, cow mag is kind of a, a, a Almost like sometimes the plant will tell you, you know, if your plant is really super healthy, you might want to think about maybe, you know, in, in your past day 21, day 24 in that range, you might want to kind of scale it back. Also, like like that, dude, that's funny that that rainbow one that I'm growing, the rainbow belts, it's super, super green. And it's on the same CalMag, you know, regiment that the GG4 is. And the GG4 is a little bit yellower and it's day 20 and it definitely still needs cow mag. So each plant's different. You just got to kind of experiment. Each cow mag is different. Your, your, your medium is different. It just depends on a lot of different factors on where you're going to take cow mag off. That's an interesting debate that I have with my own self. So it's definitely crucial. Brandon has some soil testing to even show in organic soils that it does 
have a tendency to use a lot of calcium um, and it does need to be replaced every single run. It's, it's certainly important for the growth process. So um, I think that he's using some sort of a slow release. I can't, I can't remember the name. He's sponsored by a nutrient company, but uh, shout out to you, Doug, yeah. doctor. Go ahead. Tal. I, I would just say, yeah, I'm sure doc has an opinion now that he knows the question, but do you know, the plants need all the nutrients all the way to the end. If, if you want them to keep growing, you know, that's pretty much what, but ideally, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think uh, it doesn't hurt definitely at the end to, to kick some off. Like I, I have my organic soil, so I don't add much of anything. What, you know, past the month into flower, actually, I don't add anything after a month into flower. And, uh, but with the, with, um, you know, salt and hydro, if you don't add it, it's going to get, some of it will get depleted right away. So that will hurt yeah. your yield bad. Yeah. 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 So doc would know better than me. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, it depends on how you're you're fertilizing, but this does sound like he's he's mending the soil, um, yep. not fertigating. So no, he's yeah, he's using a, a slow release sort of amendment. He said pellets. Yeah. So he's going to stop feeding it, but it's still going to be there for a while, yeah. and that's sort of the challenge, right? Yeah, it's always a tell you you figure those, that kind of stuff out with pot size and plant size throughout your runs, getting familiar with the soils and things like that. And we're going to squeeze one quick one in. You can ask go. the company. By the way, yeah, call up the company or look what it says on the package. What are their recommendations? Right? It might not always be the best there, but you know, your your That's results too, may vary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would take that recommendation, probably cut it back a little bit. Uh and then I always, grower that's used it with good success. Yeah, that's the best, really best recommendation. And then the last question before we go, and then we'll do our shout-outs. Rosanate asks. Uh, at Zenthanol, if I know white fly outbreak will happen in a greenhouse, is there any preventative biocontrol? I uh, currently will rely on it. And I'll ask you to pronounce that one because I don't know how to say it. Encarcia formosa? Encarcia formosa. Yeah, that's a parasitic wasp of so certain white fly. Yeah. So I answered this one in chat as well. And it's a good question to ask. So um, yeah, there are some specialists. I recommended in the chat Delphasis catalinae, which is a special lady beetle. It's black and small, and it goes after white fly. Don't confuse this with our lady beetle. It's not the same. Um, also, Bouveria bassiana hits really hard. Of course, it's a lot better if you can get the bug when it's there. And so it kind of really depends on the context of how you know that they're coming. I assume it's from knowing the the rhythm of the nature in your ambient space. And then also um, cucumers and Swirskii predatory mice work really well. They can go after alternatives like thrips um, and can feed them on pollen. So they can be right there ready for the white fly when they come in. And they'll attack the eggs and the larvae, but no other life stages. Thank you very much for thoroughly answering that question. And I'll pass it first to Dr. MJ for our final thoughts and shoutouts. Absolutely, guys. This was fun. I'm sorry if I got like sort of a little bit in a twist earlier on in the show. I just felt like wow, I was like not sort of prepared, but I banished the there's thought. A, there's a lot of grower love on this panel. So I, I wasn't really worried that everybody had suddenly sort of like turned on me or anything. I mean, I, it's, we have a lot of respect for each other too. So um, I appreciate, you know, all of you guys. This was a fun conversation. Um, I love doing the Q&A chats. And I guess this is a good opportunity for me to plug my, my Patreon show. So I'm doing the Ask Dr. Coco show on Mondays. Um, tomorrow, I have a guest garden tour. Glenn from Premium Agriculture, which is a 10,000 square foot facility in Oklahoma, is going to come on. And I'm going to basically do a, a consultation call with him like I would do with other, other um, 
commercial growers. So I think it'll be fun to kind of listen in and, and take a tour around Glenn's facility. And you can ask any questions I didn't get to today, if you still have any, or if this inspired other questions. So check out my uh, Patreon page at Dr. MJ Coco. Of course, um, all my articles, resources, everything else is free at CocoForCannabis.com. I got my YouTube channel at Dr. MJ Coco. And um, yeah, I do the Growing With My Fellow Growers podcast every every Sunday afternoon, the highlight of my week. So thanks again to the Jack and to the host Jack and to the panel and to all you chatters and everybody else that's listening in. Grower love. Thank you, Doc. And I will take definitely some uh, credit earlier for being a little bit testy. I'm, I'm recovering from a cold. I have a bit of an ear infection. I've been feeling unwell the past few days. And on top of that, my left headphone was cutting in and out, which is like irritating me as the show is going on, just from like a production standpoint. And that's the ear that I have the ear infection in. So I wasn't sure if it was I can't hear or if it was I realized later it was my headphone actually wasn't working. I've had these for years and they all of a sudden when I get sick, decide to stop working. So it was a more frustration on my end. And I really do respect you a lot as a person and your opinion and everybody's opinion on the show. And I also try to stand for the people in the chat because I know we've got those people out there that are like, fuck you, I leave strip day 2142 and I'm going to keep doing it till I die. And it's the way I do it. You know, my attitude is always like, I support growers. I I like seeing people do different things. Even if I privately think those things are a big mistake, I I mean, I'm not going to try to convince you not to do it. If you ask my opinion, I'll tell you what my opinion is. But like, other than that, and go that's how grow we your plants you. and have fun doing it, right? Because that's what it's all about. Right. I and agree it, with you, Jack. Yeah. It's, I, I respect you 100%. You should speak your mind and what you believe and, and what you believe and share the science. You've shared great science with me countless times. So I appreciate you so much on this panel. And I always try and uh, whenever somebody comments negatively about you or anybody on the panel, defend all of you, because I think that you all have great points of view and opinions and experiences and i love every single person on this panel uh you know i've met several of you in person and i consider you all friends and uh, i love doing the show and i really uh, appreciate your time every single week because we all get better because of this and uh if if that confrontation earlier was too much for some people i do apologize we try to keep it cordial and uh we we want to keep that grower love going all the time so that's uh i I think that we're all grower love jack and uh, yeah we're 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 tight don't worry and we'll, yes. we'll have to have uh, some pizza or some uh, lasagna or something sometime. There you uh, go. Yeah. Down. He just perfected his lasagna. You should yeah, do it. Yeah, I did. I'll have you both over. We'll have to have a party and have lasagna. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, next up, I will pass it over to Matthew Gates. Yeah, this is a good and ebullient show. I have to agree. And, um, you know, I just want to say that uh, just as a parting thing, because we're really off the, the 1600 timescale. So, um I love plant physiology. It informs a lot of my technique. I love looking at bugs. If you're interested in some of that information, if you need some help, go to my YouTube channel, Xenthanol. Check me out on Instagram at SyncAngel or Twitter at SyncAngel. Or if you require some consultation, my professional work can be found on xenthanol.com and you can contact me there or on social media as many are wanted to do. And uh, I look forward to your mutual success. Chat, everyone who's listening and the team here. Um, I look forward to our next channel uh, update. Likewise, and I think that this one was definitely worth running. The few extra minutes long, we had a great discussion, and I wanted to make sure that we we're all clear. And sometimes we talk about the stuff after the show, and uh, I think that it's good for the people out there to know that we all are on a, a good note and good page. And I knew that it was that way even before we had this final discussion, but I just yeah. want to make it 100% clear for those people out there. And uh, next up, we got Noah the Groa. Yeah. 
Uh, I had a good time today too. Uh, I'm going to grow on Instagram with two E's. You can find me there. I'll be here next week. I'm here all the time. Uh, no, no disrespect to anybody on this panel. I consider everybody in this panel a cannabis expert. Uh, I'm lucky to be a part of it. Uh, I just can only speak from my own experience. I could, would never tell another farmer what to do in their own garden. They're going to know way more about that garden than I'm ever going to know. I just hope that maybe my experiences and that, you know, my uh, point of view can be taken. Uh, no disrespect to anybody ever, Doc, you know that. I already sent you a direct message. Uh, but no, uh, grow our love to everybody. I'll see you next week. It was great having you as always, Noah. And uh, last and certainly not least Noah. of the great panelists this evening, the American one. Jack, thanks for hosting as usual. And yeah, this one didn't go by as fast as some of the previous shows, I must say. But it was awesome. And, you know, I respect all of your opinions. I mean, you're just all just one notch under me in experience and knowledge. So I have to respect you. <laughs> but um, in all seriousness, I love yeah. you all. And, yeah, you know, a little friction helps the um, helps heat up the uh, atmosphere and gets the chat, you know, probably a little listening in a little harder. But it's all good, you know. And I often play devil's advocate. It's just something in me that, like, even when I'm on the same side, I'll still come up with something like, yeah, putting them off, you know what I mean? So, but it's all, it's all in the, uh, in the uh, spirit of learning and figuring out and, you know, just getting better at growing and everything. So, yeah, it's awesome being here every week and I'm glad we're still here and we'll catch you all next week. Love you guys in chat and peace out. Cheers to you on that. And I don't know when you were born, but uh, I'm a Libra and I'm told that they're like the scales, right? And I tend to take that devil's advocate position a lot too, even when oh, I you know, completely support the other side. You know what else I was well, going to say? This, this uh, change in the hour, to, we lost an hour, right? That's so that, true. Yeah, we that just jumped forward. That's why. Yeah, we're all off a little, so no worries. Obviously. Right. It's still light cool. out when we're ending the show. This is like disturbing to me. I'm like, how can the show be? You were just talking about it didn't seem to go by as fast. I keep waiting for it to get dark. It is a place where we'll get dark shallower, though. Anyways. With that said, it was uh, another great one. I really appreciate everybody's time and uh, hope to get to Tao's level of experience someday. But uh, we'll never quite connect. <laughs> <Yes>. Me too. <laughs> and for uh, myself, at Jack Greenstock, you can find me on Instagram, Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter, JackGreenstock47 at gmail.com if you want to catch me on the email. Thank you all for listening. And uh, it was a great time, as always. And I can't wait to see you all next week. Have a great one. Grow love. Grow love, everyone. Keep growing. I also want to say shout out to Aaron the Grower, uh, Brandon Russ, and Kyle. Yes. Lieber. Great yes. guys. And uh, I will say I respect everybody on this panel so much. I would say even professionally, if you want to do consultation with, with Doc, with Matthew, with Aaron the Grower, with anybody who's on this panel who offers services, I believe in them 100%. You don't even have to DM me and ask. I really do respect everybody to that point where I really value every single dollar. The Cheap Home Grow is firm in my heart. Every single penny that we make today uh, doesn't go as far, you know, and so valuing that and putting it to a good place means a lot. And uh, I do stand behind that. I, I would respect and support anybody on this show. So thank you all for being here. And uh, I can't wait to continue to 